You folks see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says applesauce. No, no, I, I'm kidding. It says applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Rapol. And we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Mr. Andrew James from Row3.com, and he also hosts one of my favorite podcasts, The Cinecast. Hello. Thanks Hello, guys for having me. Thank it's you for being here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how special I am, but, but uh, it should be fun talk anyway. Oh, <laughs> I, I've mentioned this before via email, and... You know um, your podcast, and I, I know you had you, you played a big part in, in uh, setting up the Movie Club podcast, well, along with the Film Junk guys. I mean, you guys have been nothing but inspirational, and um, you know have have consistently entertained me with your show. And I don't know if uh, I would have, you know, um, embarked on my own podcasting endeavor for weren't for you guys. So also, uh, also, <laughs> most of the guests we've had thus far have been just like. Um, and now special with us is this dude we know. <laughs> so, so as far as as far as your credentials, you're by far the most special guest that we've had. I see. Awesome. Well, I feel honored. Thanks. Those those are kind words. And actually, I would say kind of the same thing about your guys' show. I think you guys have really good chemistry, and from just from episode one on, it felt like you guys have just been doing this forever. And it's a great show. So it's I'm happy to be here. We kind of have in a way. Yeah. <laughs> just in. Patrick's basement, we would have these, you know, two-hour conversations about a movie or a director, or we would just watch a couple movies back-to-back, and we would have these kinds of discussions, and my idea was like, why aren't we just doing this in front of microphones? (laughs) You know? And, you know, I I like the idea of the book of the month, you know, converted into movies, because I definitely watch way more movies than I do read books. Um, And it's, you know, it's just a good, good idea to hang out with friends and, you know, talk about things that you're passionate about and and you guys do that really really well on your show i mean it's oh, like thanks. you you all have a very interesting dynamic and you sort of you know have you know kurt seems like you know he's a, he really intellectualizes a lot and i like that a lot <laughs> when people mm-hmm. talk about movies when they sort of really get you know super analytical about them and uh you know, you you guys know what you're talking about too, also, and, and I like how freeform it is. I think I think we can all agree that one of the major perks of podcasting is just the women. <laughs> um, the, the level yeah, of women that I've been attracting roles. lately has just been phenomenal. So, yeah, that's, I think that's mostly the main reason we got into this. And the cocaine, yeah, for sure. It feels so right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, so we actually have some emails this week. We're we're actually um, excited uh, to talk. We didn't mention who we're going to discuss on this show. Oh, that's right, Mr. Pedro Almodovar, mm-hmm. and uh, often credited as just Almodovar, <laughs> um, or or, or P A for short, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's going to be um, our focus of discussion today, and um, in, in other podcasts on, on the Cinecast, I've I've heard. Andrew mentioned a couple of times that he's a fan, and I just really wanted to have him on the show to talk some some Pedro with us because we have yet to tackle a foreign director. Yeah, that's that was I think the the main reason we uh, we went with Helmut Dovar. Um, right. We were also now, 
sorry, had you had you guys been have you been seen a lot of Almodovar previous to this podcast or did I had you I had only stuff just for the show. I had only seen Bad Education and All About My Mother and I really liked them both, but I just never saw any of his other films. And I have to say I'm really excited about this episode cuz after seeing I'd say maybe like four or five more of his movies in preparation for this episode, I he's quickly become just one of my favorite directors. Cool. Yeah, um I mean we're very grateful to Kurt for also recommending uh, Joseph Losey and I'd never seen one of his movies up until we you know he recommended it to oh, you saw me. you saw the boy with green hair. Oh yeah, yeah, that was younger. the only one. Yeah, when I only saw that when I was way younger and yeah. with with Pedro I think I'd only seen two of his I've only seen Bad Education and Talk to Her. And uh I I I liked him a lot, but um upon rewatching we'll we'll get more into it about um he's really stepped up in my eyes as well. I've, so I've been trying to well it's I guess it's been about a year and a half. I've been trying to get through as many Almodovar movies as I can and then write up a little review. So like not to give a shameless plug here, but plug away. <laughs> oh no please do on the side. <laughs> On the side, there's a little marathons button where we've done various director marathons or genre marathons or whatever. And there is a Elmadovar marathon in there. Unfortunately, I've only written, I think, like five reviews. But mm-hmm. a couple of the ones that we're discussing here today should be in there. So if anyone's interested in that, there's that. And I'm, gonna, I can, I'm planning on continuing that and getting some more up there as soon as I can. He has I a... call it a leisurely marathon, a leisure marathon. I'm not sure if there's an Ameri- he has another movie coming out this uh, this year actually with yeah. uh, ben De- Antonio Banderas as the plastic surgeon. Yeah, it's supposed to be a horror movie of sorts. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like Eyes Without a Face in in plot, or a little bit like a Cronenberg movie, just oh, sort yeah. of you know tapping into maybe the intense uh, sort of flesh fetishing <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, but so maybe probably I'm thinking more of like a psychological horror movie rather than something literal with. You know, that's kind of jump what I scares. Yeah. yeah. So I'm hopefully I'm not sure if, if when that is getting if that's even getting like an American theatrical release. So that'll be fun to see as well. But yeah. um, anyway, we got we got some emails. Yeah, just just a couple um, asking uh, some questions. And... Oh, oh, re- yeah. <laughs> real go quick, ahead. do you remember the guy's site who immediately? Uh, we never actually talked about it on the bonus episode um, mm-hmm. last uh, two weeks ago, but. Literally um, five minutes after we finished recording the John McTiernan episode, we received an email um, from <laughs> the biggest John McTiernan fan in history, and he has like written long, impassioned defenses of basic. Like <laughs> he 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 has this wow. he has a John McTiernan blog, and he, there's a French book about John McTiernan that he's like translating himself. He doesn't speak French, but. He he's like using like translation sites in order to, and he's like posting it like a couple pages at a time on his blog. Do you remember the site? Not offhand. I mean, I'm, I can definitely. I'm sorry. Look it up. I I just thought about it, but in, he he said he wished to be a guest if we ever did John McTiernan again, and he's he sounds like a bit of a nut, and he's so I would be really excited to have him on. Oh, for sure, definitely. Um, um, our first email comes from Jason. Um, he just wanted to know. Uh, very simply, what might our top five favorite directors of all time might be? Right, which that was actually a thing that we wanted to do episode one, and we just forgot. <laughs> yeah, I mean... We wanted to sort of introduce our tastes. I'm a sucker for list making in general, yeah, so when somebody asks are. me that, I'm all for it. Aren't and, we all? Uh, you know, 
I'm more than happy to uh, partake in this. So, um, you want to go first, Patrick? Oh yeah, sure. Go um, this is in no real order, except my number one favorite director of all time is Woody Allen, because um, I think another fun thing to go over sometime might be the movie that got you into movies. Oh yeah, for, for me that's Annie Hall, um, and that was like the first movie I saw where I really realized that oh, filmmaking is like an art, and there's a thousand different techniques and used to tell a story and everything. So. And I just, I love, like, he, you know, he's definitely inconsistent, especially nowadays, but I really, really like Woody Allen a lot. So he's my number one. And then I'll just list the other ones. Um, uh, Robert Altman. Um, Good choice. Never seen a movie by him that I hated. Uh, I, did you see, some re- I did you see Ready to Wear? No. <laughs> I, oh, my God. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see Ready to Wear. I actually haven't watched, Jim found a VHS copy of Beyond Therapy. <laughs> and he, <laughs> That's he gave a trip. it to me. And <laughs> I still haven't watched that yet, but. That movie's fucked up. Um, anyway, so there's Robert Altman, um, Edgar Wright, who's sort of new, but like everything about his comedy um, just hits me perfect. I'm I'm actually not one of the bigger fans of Scott Pilgrim, but I think he's just such an immensely talented like comedic director, and he his movies are just hands down like the best directed comedies, you know that that are out there these days. Um, the Coen Brothers, they're just sort oh, of yeah. impeccable. They're ones I always forget, um, and then. You know, but they're they're just you know, I feel like they've they've made very very few movies that aren't masterpieces. So, <laughs> and they've made a number of movies. So, and then uh, Martin Scorsese, who's you know, no no explanation needed there. Yeah, excellent list, sir. Um, number five. <laughs> Obviously, um, our next episode is going to cover this uh, director's work, and I'm very excited about it. But he literally just released a movie this past weekend that is supposed to be horrendous. Um, but it's David Gordon Green, and his latest movie's Your Highness, and I've heard nothing but terrible buzz about it, which has made me very sad, because he's one of my favorite directors right now. He's got sort of a Terrence Malick quality about him that I like, and is has a really awkward, strange sense of humor in his movies. A lot of non sequiturs. Just, just my sensibilities are really tapped into with, with his style of filmmaking that I really admire and appreciate. Um, number four would be Billy Wilder. Although I do admit, like I, I think more of him as a writer oh, yeah, than a director. But I mean, his movies are just amazing. Um, I think way. I think he might. I think I might like him more than Martin Scorsese. Actually, the, the master of uh, you know social satire, and uh, you know th- there wouldn't be guys like James L. Brooks and Cameron Crowe if it weren't for Billy Wilder. Um, <clears throat> and then number three would be P.T. Anderson. Uh, you know, Magnolia is one of my all-time favorite movies, but I've loved everything he's done, and uh, for for different reasons too. Every movie he makes seems to stand out in, in some special way. Uh, I mean, stylistically, he does owe a lot to guys like Altman and Scorsese, especially with Boogie Nights, but um, Boogie Nights is one of my favorites, too. So it's really hard. It's, it's hard to just pick a favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie because I love them all pretty much equally. Yeah. Good choice. I, I could see him entering my list at some point. I just need a little bit more of a filmography from somebody. Yeah. Kind of no, that, that totally yes. makes sense. I just Boogie have Nights such a... and Magnolia are just... Are yeah. just and Punch Drunk Love. You know what? In fact, you mentioned uh, you said the Coen Brothers make all masterpieces. I could make a pretty good case that all of P.T. Anderson's films, other than maybe Hard Eight, are right. all masterpieces. Yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, totally Hard Eight agree. is the only movie of his I didn't I did not like, but I liked really it, good. but didn't love it. I thought it was okay. Um, 
And then number two is uh, Martin Scorsese, obviously. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, again, he's pretty much a flawless filmmaker. Even something like Gangs in New York, I sort of attribute more to studios hacking it to bits or making him make compromises and changes that probably he didn't want to do. Um, but I, 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 I don't know. What can you say? It's Martin Scorsese, for God's sake. <laughs> Um, and then number one is uh, definitely the the guy who got me into movies um, even more so than when I saw Back to the Future when I was a kid. Um, I saw Evil Dead 2 when I was like 13, 14 years old. And that's pretty much when I became obsessed with learning on how to direct as opposed to just watch a movie. Like I wanted to know how does he make the camera do that? And why did this cut here? And, you know, just like just the technical aspects of filmmaking is what really drove me to Sam Raimi. And I don't know if he'll ever, ever be better. Or, or I don't know if I'll ever love a director as much as Sam Raimi. So that would be my list. Uh, Sam Raimi that's at a, number one. Isn't that, That's a good personal choice. Yeah. I like that. Have yeah. you to, you've told me that there's not a Sam Raimi movie you don't like. Is that true? Um, Spider-Man 3 might actually be the only Sam Raimi movie I don't like. Um, because it's terrible. Yes. <laughs> it's it's god-awful. But I even like Quick and the Dead. Um, trying to think of other... Crime Wave, I guess he co-directed with the Coen brothers. I don't even know if that movie counts. But that's that's a pretty weak movie, but there's some cool visual shit going on in that movie that I liked. Uh, you know, some camera tricks that were kind of cool, but the plot itself was kind of eh. Right. All right. I think he really came back to, into his own with Drag Me to Hell. That movie was one of the best agree. movies of last year. Yeah. Or two years ago. Totally. Uh, yeah. Agree. Yeah. He's amazing. And he's going to be he's going to be coming up soon on our on our show. We'll be talking yes. about him. And I'll be talking about him later during the What We Watch segment as well. So. <laughs> Go ahead, Andrew. What's uh, uh, what's on your okay, list? Well, first I should say this should be known as the uh Sidney Lumet Memorial. Yes, we that's, <laughs> that's right. So sad. We we're going to mention that he died. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a real bummer. Oh, did I steal your thunder? No, no, no. We forgot. No, oh, we I'm were saying oh. we forgot. Yeah, we actually ah, forgot okay. about it. Yeah, so I'm I'm actually considering um, rewatching Before the Devil Knows You're Dead tonight. Ooh, so, uh, good good film. Yeah, very his good. Last film. film and and rewatch. Anyway, he's not on my list. However, um, so my list would be number five, Roman Polanski. And mm. this is kind of a new addition to my, I don't know, my favorite film directors because I just started really getting into his movies over the last year. Um, but, like, I pretty much own all of his all of his movies on DVD, and I've been getting through all of them, and they're all, other than Bitter Moon, they're all really amazing movies. Yeah, I need to see a lot more of his work. I mean, I, I, I've seen his early stuff... And like Knife in the Water, um, Rosemary's Baby, and um, a couple other ones I know I've seen of his. That oh, like, Chinatown, I, obviously. Chinatown. <laughs> the Pianist is a good entry point. But I, I just uh, I just recently saw The Ghost Rider, and I was floored by that movie. I, I mean, it's I don't know if it's like up there with some of his best work, and maybe a lot of it has to do with the way the movie resolves in the end my response to it but I thought it was exceptionally well put together and it made me remind me that oh I gotta go watch more Polanski flicks because he's pretty damn amazing 
Agreed. That movie's great. It's so cl- like uh, his shooting style is very classic. Yes, it's very Hitchcockian, and especially the Ghost Rider is that way. I definitely had that in my top ten last year. Yeah, I think that's uh, why I actually saw it too. <laughs> uh, okay, number four for me is also the Coens, which is weird. I would think they'd be even a little bit higher because when you look at the Coen brothers, just just pull up their filmography and. It's you're almost speechless because every single title is just amazing, and it's like they churn them out every year. Mm-hmm. It, they're just master storytellers. So the Coens, number four, number three yeah. would be Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm again, a, not not a movie he's made that I haven't liked yet, and I think he's getting better. Yeah, yeah, I was really really impressed with Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, I think that was the first movie that people really. When I say people, I mean, I don't know, sort of stuffy critic types really kind of started to take him serious. Right. I think because, especially after sort of the failure of of Grindhouse, people were, oh, is he just, is that the thing he does now? (laughs) Where he he does the pop culture references and the, but, and then Inglorious Bastards isn't anything like that. Right. No, it's its own thing and it's pretty, it's pretty epic and it's pretty original and fantastically well made um yeah so that would be three number two i kind of have a tie here for number one and number two but steven soderbergh oh is yeah one of my heroes yeah. the guy I, i'm just a man again this is one of those guys that's like if if there was a rotten tomatoes meter for directors he'd be like right at the 50 to 60 percent range i i would think right mm-hmm. right just because he's his filmography is so diverse <laughs> And I think, and it's very critically diverse too, right? Like the people just hate the good German, or completely don't understand. <laughs> full frontal. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't frontal. a big fan. I fa- love I those movies. Yeah. I love them all. I wasn't I a big Ocean's fan of Eleven them. too. I I really love Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's yeah. Twelve uh, actually. Um, there were a couple of his earlier films like Schizopolis or The Underneath that I thought, um, you know, were were, were uh, good attempts, but. Nothing like spectacular, but I think something like Sex Lies and Videotape will always stand out in my mind as being a, a masterpiece. And then, like you know, it sparked such a whole indie movement at the time. That uh, like, and, and just his approach—the fact that he can make a bubble and then an Ocean's Eleven shows like how strong of a contrast he has. But he's able to bring his A game to both types of projects, whether it be a big budget studio or something completely minimal. And Which is what, what I love. Sucks. He's got like two or three more films in the works. That's and what he, he says. Claims he's done. <laughs> I don't know. Has he done? I mean, is he like Jay Z, where he keeps saying that, or is his <laughs> has? Maybe. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I guess time will tell. But yeah. I'm stoked for his next couple movies. They're kind of big budget blockbustery kind of things. It looks like so. Yeah, I think the informant should have got a lot more attention than it did, especially oh, for man. Matt Damon's performance. Mm-hmm. It was great. That movie is really outstanding. And yeah. And of course, uh, and then, oh, uh, I'm sorry. The other thing about Soderbergh that you just have to love and respect is that he, you know, he mo- he mostly writes all of his movies, he directs his movies, he shoots his movies, and he edits his movies. You know, so it's like just the complete uh, package there. Yeah. He, just, he does everything. Everything you see totally, is Soderbergh. Yeah. It's like his craft. Right. Is the final product, which is awesome. Yeah, he's a guy we'll have yeah. to do two episodes for because <laughs> he's got so I much. I want to be there for that. Yeah. By the way. Definitely. Well, definitely. Um, number one, my favorite director of all time is Stanley Kubrick. Ooh, uh, yeah. Just 
I don't know, like his diversity, he, he's kind of like the really polished version almost of Soderbergh, because I mean, he does sci-fi things, and then he does a, a period war drama, and then he does a crazy futuristic ultraviolet, or ultraviolent um, thing, and like he, he just does so many different things, and they're all so epic and amazing. Um, yeah, he's very meticulous, and you know he takes his time with his movies. And exactly, we're going to get into that with Alma Dovar about mm-hmm. how he is very—he's uh, very interested in detail, right? And, and like you said, meticulous is a great word with framing and what's in the shot and everything. And um, if you watch his the Life in Pictures DVD, it comes with the the box set. Uh, it gets more into that about how he had literally like a, a full, you know, those library cards. He had like a whole wall full of those, full of ideas and details about what to put in a particular movie. Right. So it seems like he, he must have been extremely difficult to work with, but <laughs> finished product, Jesus Christ, a Clockwork Orange, um, Dr. Strangelove, like those are two of my top five yeah. movies of all time. Um, it's funny, like he's he's obviously just an impeccable director who just makes masterpieces. But mm-hmm. he's actually not like one that I usually is a, is a go to for me because like Strange Love and maybe The Shining aside, I find I don't enjoy his movies very much because they're very cold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's something I appreciate more on a technical level, and I mean, I, I think well, he, a lot of his, I think the majority of his movies are adapted from books, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. And then, right. you know, when, when Eyes Wide Shut came around, I remember the, peop- the hate for that movie was so, you know, insane. Well, that's that's, yeah, that's I, one of my, fav- it's I, one of my yeah. favorite Kubrick movies, actually. And I, and I absolutely loved it, and that's what made me revisit all of his earlier work again. And I kind of went, well, yeah, I mean, his, his sensibilities are, are kind of the same throughout, but just what he brings to each movie is pretty extraordinary. Oh, I mean, again, yeah, there's no doubting his immense talent and that he makes great movies. They're just, in general, not the kind of movies that I really enjoy all that much. In terms of being fun? Or? Well, it's not even just, it's not even just fun. It's just, um, you know, I, I sort of, I don't feel an emotional connection. I feel like, especially something like The Shining, where I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> um, I feel... You said- when you said cold, I think that's that's accurate. I can, you know, like there's a lot of just negative space. He likes those long hallways and and weird lighting and sort of tracking shots. Mm-hmm. Like I can see, you know, there's not a lot of maybe emotional depth in some of that stuff. Right. It's cold. That's actually that's and that's actually why I kind of want eyes wide shuts are my favorite because I feel there is a lot of emotional depth to that movie. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, it's with somebody like 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 David Fincher, he's so you know, like I said, meticulous, you know, and that, and that's sort of, you know, doing a hundred takes of of one shot. Does it lose some of that you know organic, you know, feeling to where it actually robs the frame of any sort of uh, you know emotion? It's more of like let's get this shot perfect, and you know they're they're focused on the technical aspects, but I feel like. You know, both Fincher and Kubrick sort of also do it in service of the story, and I don't know. I, I I'm pretty much in awe in terms of the you know how they can craft um, a scene. Oh, put completely. It together. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're good at setting a mood. Yes, even Definitely. yeah, even you know, even even something more low budget. 
um, you know, something like The Killing is just mm-hmm. has some sort so much phenomenal stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mood in that movie is incredible. But yeah, I don't think I've ever cried at a Kubrick movie. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so I bet I bet uh, Shelley Duvall cried quite a bit on set. Yeah, because <laughs> he was like uh, trying to provoke her in every instance. I think that's a really funny because Shelley Duvall, like she was used to like she worked a lot like Robert Altman, who's the <laughs> exact opposite of Kubrick, where it's like go ahead and improvise, you know, you know, find your own thing going on, and where Kubrick is. You know, no, you have to do this, and you have to do it right. And if you don't do it right, we'll do it until you know the sun goes down. Right. Which Altman film was she in? Oh, she was in um, Popeye. She was in. Well, oh, she was in right. Popeye. <laughs> she was in Three Women. Um, she was in Nashville. She oh, yeah. was yeah, in she was Brewster McCloud. Okay, none of those other than Popeye have I seen. So, oh yeah, Nash. You got Not Nashville's seen. great. Nashville is in my queue. I yeah. will get there. Yeah, she was a she was like a makeup lady in Texas, and Robert Altman like found her and said, "Oh, do you want to be in this movie? I like sort of how you are, or whatever. <laughs> I just want you to sort of live as yourself in Brewster McCloud." So that was how she started acting. Um, hmm. And I think that that's and whenever like I sort of found found that out, like suddenly those like behind the scenes videos uh, of like of Stanley Kubrick just berating Shelley Duvall. And just yelling at her, like it's made so much more sense. Mm-hmm. It's like being on the set of a David O. Russell film. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, those, uh, no complaints there, all around. I think yeah, we all, all covered good. it. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, I think we're going to get into what we watched this week. Oh, we had one other email. Oh, yeah, we did, and it was just, um, yeah, it was a. Uh, thanks for reminding me. I forgot. Um. This one is from uh, David, actually, and it. Was, oh, Russell! <laughs> if only he's probably yelling at you again. Um, it just wanted. He just wanted. <laughs> it just, it's weird. It was just an email that said, "You fucking cunt." <laughs> Very odd. Um, he, he uh, David here wants to know if we ever plan on covering a director that has only done two movies total, which. You know, off the top of my head, I couldn't think of anybody else. Yeah, the only one I could think of is Joseph Kahn, who directed Torque, which is a movie I actually really like. <laughs> and I know it gets a lot of laughs, but for, it's... For it's, Adam Scott alone. Well, no, I think Torque is a lot more self-aware than people give it credit for. Mm. Um, but anyway, he directed... He has a new movie that just came out at South by Southwest called Detention that apparently is very similar and hyperkinetic and... But other than that, like I can't really think of many directors. Oh, um, you mentioned tough. Duncan Jones. Yeah, I mentioned Duncan did source Jones. codes and source code and uh, Moon. Yeah. Um, maybe Ryan well, that's Johnson because he's you know fairly. We new. could do oh, Ryan yeah. Ryan Johnson. He Ryan only Johnson. Did, uh, yeah. We got to do that quick before Looper comes out. Then. <laughs> yeah, is that th- supposed to come out this year? Is, I hope so. Got to be getting close, right? I, I can't remember if I think it's supposed to come out 2012. I can't. I I don't remember the details, so I shouldn't say anything. But. It'll be interesting if you know if that does come out this year because I don't know I don't actually know the plot of Looper but it's it, it just him tackling time travel or you know time loops would be very akin to uh, Source Code so it'd be interesting to compare the two. I think Duncan Jones did, did something on Looper. Like, did he? Yeah, like he was some kind of consultant or maybe there was just he just hung out around set. But I heard something about him being there <laughs> during the mo- during during the filming. That's interesting. I know they're friends, so. I could see that. That's cool. Oh, man. No, Shane Carruth only did Primer, right? 
Oh, that's fucking that's a, that's a so shame. Good. We gotta wait for Shane's next movie. Andrew, have you seen Primer? Oh yes. God, that's, that's so an awesome good. Yeah. Mind bender. Definitely. I've only watched it once, and which is stupid. I need to watch it times. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually own it, so I don't know what my problem is. Yeah, I need to get to that. Too. I think like I, uh, obviously getting your head around the time travel and what's going on, and you know that that's one thing. But what what really blows me away is how every time I watch it is how it's just like guys talking about physics stuff and do it using physics jargon. But like even before it starts with the time travel, it's the most like engrossing, mm-hmm. just compelling stuff. Just them trying to figure out these problems. It's so exciting to watch. Yeah, I'm uh, drawn to that. It's sort of similar to. I, like one of my, my, you know, my favorite. I think maybe everyone's favorite scene, "Hustle and Flow," is when they're putting together the song for "Whoop That Trick," and yes, and they're like figuring out how it's going to work, and and you know, he, they see him trying to figure out what the keyboard part's going to be. And I think that's always really exciting to watch the creative process, and that's actually you know, the time travel stuff is brilliant, and it's you know, it's one of the greatest time travel movies ever made. But I think my favorite part of Primer is just when they're trying to figure out exactly what they got a hold of. Yeah, that stuff is so compelling. Definitely. I thought of one... I was just looking through my DVDs. I thought of one other director that's only done two. um, Actually, one and a half. But he did Hunger, Steve McQueen. Oh, what else did he do? And Well, apparently, I thought it was done, but looking at IMDb, it's in post-production right now called Shame. That's supposed to come out this year. Oh, Hmm. there you go. That's a a Uh, great movie. Cool. All right. Well, we'll definitely Gamora. consider Who, that. Gamora. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. It's a, it's a tough question. You can't. This isn't something you can really Google. You have to come off. Come yeah. It off the top of your head. I'm trying to. I think the guy who directed Matteo Garone directed Gamora. Right. Right. Uh, the Italian uh, gangster oh, no, movie. He's got a whole bunch of stuff. Never mind. <laughs> so Steve McQueen's the only one I could come up with. Yeah, and I was thinking about the guy who did Bronson, but I'm I'm pretty sure he's done more than two movies at this point, right? did Bronson, and then he did Valhalla Rising. Yeah. I'm, and he, didn't he do all of the Pusher movies? He did, like, three Pusher movies. Right. The pusher. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know why I thought of him. <laughs> Alright, anyway, let's get into the movies we watched this week. This this podcast can go a little long. Yeah, um, I mean, but, we haven't, we, with the bonus episode, we haven't had, like, an official episode in a while, so we can yeah. totally make it a uh, epic, long podcast. In, in honor of... My world, guys. Yeah, in honor of Andrew, actually. Right. <laughs> Who is known for his epic. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. I get blamed for that, but clearly that's not completely my fault. And, and you know what? I was actually bummed that the last episode was only an hour and a half. I was like, what? <laughs> but I'm, Yeah, I, we had to cut that one short. Yeah. Well, um, Kurt had to go to the, uh, that, that film festival. Yeah. We, there was, all three of us had something we had to get to. Right. And so we all agreed, one movie each, we're going to review this, and we're going to be done. And it actually, we say that all the time, and it never <laughs> happens. And this time it actually happened. It was. Well, like good job. Battle. Yeah, now it's time to talk about the films and movies that we motherfucking watched. Yeah, now it's time to talk about them crazy ass films that we motherfucking watched. I think I'll go first this time. Um. Because I, I think one of the movies, the, the movie I just saw in, in theaters will. Because I have a question posed to both of you as, as um, you know, film devotees of sorts, and just like, uh, it's something that's that has always been on my mind that I want to bring up after I uh, discuss this particular film. It's a movie called Trust, and uh, it just came out in theaters. It's by David Schwimmer, 
Okay, so this isn't the Hal Hartley movie. No, that's what I'm... I know. It gets confusing. Because one of my all-time favorite movies, it's probably in my top 10 or top 20, is a a movie called Trust from 1990, directed by Hal Hartley, who will definitely come up in the future on this show. I look forward to that. Quite a bit. Yeah, that'll be a fun discussion. Because we've been agreeing too much. Yeah, that'll be be another... I really hate Trust. That'll be another Rob Zombie movie, or Rob Zombie discussion. But anyway... um, no, D- David Schwimmer, d- this is his second movie, I well, there you go. There's a director who's only had two movies. Oh, that's right, Run, Fat he Boy, Run. He did the Boobs movie, didn't he? Hmm? He did that Boobs movie. Oh, Breast Men? Did he do that? Is that what you're talking I about? Think he, I think he just starred in that. I, th- I, th- oh, I thought this oh. was only his second movie. but All right. I know he directed Run, Fat Boy, Run with Simon Pegg. Yeah, which I didn't see. but um, that, that movie had some weird tone issues. Yeah. Well, this one is a lot more consistent. Uh, but I've been reading a lot of reviews sort of downplaying the subject matter as being like, you know, um, an after-school special of sorts, you know, a Lifetime movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would argue with that per se, it's like I mean Schwimmer doesn't really bring much to the table as what's, a as a, about? as a director, but um, it's a movie about online predators and what happens when a fourteen year old girl comes into contact with one and uh, you know a lot of crazy shit goes down, you know and uh, oh, I saw that movie <laughs> yeah, but it, it's really like no I'm I'm thinking Danny Glover isn't in this right Am I, I'm thinking a predator too <laughs> I'm sorry go ahead I know that had to come up eventually that's okay but i mean it not only shows why these kinds of things do happen and you know this movie really predominantly focuses on iphones too now and how you know texting is you know taken over as the number one form of communication with adolescents and nowadays you can't just keep your daughter away from a computer at home because they've got their phones with them and they can still be texting with you know god knows who and that that movie this movie addresses that quite well um and it addresses you know obviously the aftermath of when something like this happens and how, you know how how they how you know their coping mechanisms and how they're all different um and it, it's a lot it, it's a very conventional movie um but this is a movie where the the emotional experience kind of overrides my my criticisms of it um, mostly, it, it's an actor's movie. I mean, Catherine Keener is really great in this, um, but I, honestly, this is one of Clive Owen's best performances. He doesn't have any. Really? Yeah, he doesn't have any. I'm a fucking caveman moments. <laughs> um, you know, is he, is he the predator? <laughs> no, no, he's the dad. Does he played Danny Glover. No, <laughs> that would be that'd be kind of a stretch. No. I mean, despite obviously he's the dad, he wants to beat the fucking shit out of the guy who attacked his daughter. But it's a very wow. internal performance. You know, up until the end, nothing ever really feels sort of forced or false. Um, you know, and even by the end, the more manipulative, tear-jerking moments really worked on me. And you know, I, I realize this is not an amazing piece of cinema that everybody has to rush out and see. It's a it's a perfectly serviceable rental, but. Um, I, and I also know he turned this into a play um, over here in Chicago at one point while he was editing the movie, which is interesting. Huh. Um, and I could see it working more as a play. I'm really getting into movies a lot where it's just four or five people in one space dealing with something, some, some, some kind of crisis or something that's you know more along the lines of uh, you know a soap opera element, I guess. But it, the way this plays out, it's it's really just consistently emotional and that's kind of what I wanted to address 
when recommending a movie, you know, like the idea of now, if I gave trust like a high rating based purely on my emotional reaction and disregarding that it's a pretty conventional, not really a spectacular movie other than it just being an emotional experience, mm-hmm. whether if that sort of, you know, negates its value, I guess, as like, a, you know, a movie. Because I know every movie has a, an intention when it comes out, and maybe this movie just is there to not only address a very important issue, but to just move you. And I don't know, maybe as I'm getting older, it's all I kind of want from a movie is like, just, you know, just move me. Not necessarily like through tears, but just get an emotional reaction, you know. And I was just wondering if, you know, because one of the main reasons why I kind of stopped being a critic at one point was just that I would let the emotional reaction take precedence over the criticisms I would have over a movie. And I just felt like I'm not really looking at what the flaws are. I'm just responding to it. Be, you know, because I was moved, yeah. I guess. Well, I think there's. I think th- I mean, you can you can engage a movie on any level you want to, but I think mostly what I try to do is, I'll I'll sort of recognize these biases in me, and mm-hmm. if I'm recommending it to a friend or something, then I'll say, well, it's probably just a normal romantic comedy, but I love Drew Barrymore, so <laughs> I really loved it, or whatever. Right. Um, I don't know. I feel like. Uh, what was oh like okay but I mean you sort of you sort of learn to recognize you know good filmmaking even if you know even if it's the other way where you don't like like I really don't like Lord of the Rings movies at all there's very little to them that really you know I find compelling I find the character of Sam and Frodo compelling Mm -hmm. and pretty much everything else just bores me but I would never go as far as to say that they're bad movies you know yeah and I think you just sort of have to realize your own biases. I don't like, you know, epic fantasy, so I was that movie was never going to be for me. And I, you know, you as long as you give those sort of um, precursors to, to your opinion, then yeah. you know, because maybe just... those, maybe the people you're talking to or addressing have the same biases. Maybe they're like, "Oh fuck, I fucking love Drew Barrymore too. <laughs> She's adorable." I mean, I was realized as I was watching it, there are flaws with how it's put together, and there are moments where I'm like, well, that scene should have played out longer. But just because I had these moments of, you know, empathy with the characters, or, you know, watching these moments of sadness and rage really got to me, I just sort of overlooked, well, it's it's not really a great movie. When it comes down to it, Schwimmer hasn't become a great director in any way. He seems like he's more of an actor's director, and sometimes I like that a lot, where it's just, let's just watch some, you know, actors act the shit out of a movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's really great, but... Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I, I've come to learn over the last couple of years that um, your reaction to a film is always going to be personal, almost always. It's very personal. Like, there's acting and there's cinematography and blocking and all that stuff and it's important but in the end if you were just either moved or entertained or you were thinking about something then I think you know I don't it's okay to recommend a movie like that like I don't know have you guys ever seen a movie called Man from Earth I don't believe so mm-hmm. no all right that movie technic on a technical level and acting is terrible but the concept and just the ideas that it puts into your head is amazing. You get you get to the end and just think about it. For you want the movie to just keep going forever. Hmm. Um, and um, it's about a guy who claims that he is he was a caveman and he's just never aged. He got to age thirty five and then he's never aged. Did it star Clive Owen? A bunch of his friends. <laughs> uh, no, sorry, no. It stars like 
um, the greatest American hero guy. And, uh, <sighs> oh, wow. William Cat. Um, yes. It's, William Cat, really? A, yeah. That's yeah. so cool. That's, a, that's <laughs> funny. Well, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, it's an amazing movie, but the point is, is that none of it is good on any level except for the ideas and some of the even the dialogue is like kind of cheesy but the doctor from star star trek enterprise um is one of the characters and he tries to be funny and it's just stupid but it's all it's all when you get away when you walk away from it you you're really taking something home heavy and i think uh, like in this movie it sounds like kind of the same thing like this wasn't good this wasn't good this wasn't good but when i walked away i was thinking about it i was really emotionally moved um so I don't know. I, I think that means it's a good movie. Just yeah. because every little piece doesn't quite work right. Um, if in the end it comes together for you in a really profound way, then that's I think that says something. And even if this movie is just there to bring certain issues to the attention of the parents, I think that's that's an important, you know, and something to be commended in, in a way. But it's just like... Yeah, I guess you could have just watched this movie on cable, you know, and gotten the same experience because it does have, you know, not necessarily maybe towards the end melodram- melodramatic moments, but overall I, th- I I still recommend it just because of the acting. Well, and if you just I, want to watch a good movie with acting, that's fine. No, I actually I actually have the ultimate example of one of these movies. Um it's probably one of the worst movies I've ever seen and I really enjoyed pretty much every minute of it. Um, and it's it's interesting, yeah. <laughs> uh, though I do, I am a, I am proud to say I'm the owner of the novelization of Crawl <laughs> because just the concept wow. that I could own, like just the concept that I novelized that completely silly, ridiculous movie. Like I can't wait to read it. Yeah, but, I want to read your Nightmare anyway, on Elm Street. Trilogy. Yeah, it's it's really funny that um that you that the guy in the Man from Earth is William Cat because the movie I'm talking about is stars Cat Williams. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's called Internet Dating, and it's it's a movie by <laughs> Master P. It is it has a budget of mm, let's say fifty thousand dollars. It, it barely has a script um, at all, and but it, Cat Williams is one of my favorite comedians of all time, and because there's basically no script, um, like it's it's not even a curb level of well we know a detailed outline of everything that happens in every scene. It's pretty much just Cat Williams sort of like low energy improvising throughout <laughs> and he oh boy. Is, and it's a horrible horrible move like even on the concept of a comedy about online dating like it just makes it, it seems like it's written by someone who's never used a computer like it has that like a 1995 understanding of computer and apparently it was written by masterpiece son little romeo so that's even more serious. <laughs> no, I'm serious. This movie's horrible. But Cat Williams is such a great improviser and he's so funny that it's sort of like like how Buster Keaton can do anything and he makes me laugh. Yeah. Like Buster Keaton right. can just sort of walk dogs down the street, not even like do any gags or anything. But it's just the way his face is and the way he moves his body, everything he does makes me laugh. And it's the same with Cat Williams um, in this. And this is the wor- one of the just by far one of the worst movies I've ever seen. And I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I know a lot of people <laughs> hated um, Waking Life when I saw it because they just, oh, it's just a bunch of people talking shit for, you know, 90 minutes. There's no plot. There's nothing There's nothing there. It's really just rambling nonsense. It's a bunch of philosophers talking shit, and it's boring. I fucking love that movie because of the ideas that it, it, it's given me. And, like, 
I don't know. I'm a big fan of existentialism in general. So what can I say? I well, like. I'm not a, I, I mean, I'm an existentialist. I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> <laughs> I never, oh, thank God that I believe the silence of God and that I'm doomed alone to walk the earth. I'm not a fan of existentialism. I just happen to be part of it. Um, but actually, I'm a fan of the writing behind it. <laughs> I should say. <laughs> I'm actually a, I'm a big fan of Waking Life too, and it's funny that well, oh, there was made, a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> One of the main complaints I see about that movie is that it's pretentious, and one of the and the, one of my favorite things about the movie I feel is that it's unpretentious. Is that the way the conversations are? It's not positing any of these things as actual theories. Yeah, it's it's much more about the way people talk about big ideas. Oh, and and I love that in general. Yeah, so. yeah. Where it's it's just this sort of you get you get high and you start thinking weird stuff, and then you start thinking about these other concepts. And it's not pretentious. It's not, you know, it's not like, uh, uh, I mean, I like Enter the Void, but I think Enter the Void's pretty pretentious. It's not trying to posit anything. It's not trying to claim that it has any answers. It's just, it's much more about watching these people have the discussions. Having the experience of watching right. these people or and listening I, and to I, them. And I, I'm kind of a sucker for rotoscope, rotoscoping in general. Yeah. I think it's cool. I like Scanner Darkly, too. So anyway. Um, yeah, I'll only get to one more movie real right. quick. Um a Simple Plan I just rewatched for the first time in a couple of years, and like I said earlier, Sam Raimi is my all-time favorite director, and I'm. it's really hard to, you know, to decide if I like this more than Evil Dead 2, again, because of how much I'm moved by this movie. And, uh, I mean, it's a parable about greed and how it corrupts people in the same way that something like The Treasure of the Sierra Madre did way back when, but... Um, you know, Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton, and their friend find $4 million in a plane that crashed in a nature preserve. They decide to keep it and wait to see if anybody comes around asking about it. Then all hell breaks loose, and things kind of play out in very Fargo-like fashion. Um, but with this, there's the big difference there is that there's very little humor in this movie. I mean, it has moments, but it's a pretty dead serious um, you know, take on how people become evil and corrupted when money is involved, especially when they're not used to seeing that kind of money and they want to make a better life for themselves. Um, it's based on a book that I read in one night and I still say to this day, it's probably the only movie that's actually better than its source material. Oh, I can think of several. Okay. Well, Jaws. Godfather. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 But in the in the book, in the book things just get way too implausibly ridiculous. And you know, there's one incident in particular that I, I wouldn't give away, but it happens way too soon in the book than it does in the movie. And by waiting for this incident to take place in the movie, it actually builds a lot more tension and it sort of instills a much stronger bond between the two main characters and I I mean if if I'm going to pick a flaw there there are some moments where the actors overplay it especially Bridget Fonda <laughs> I know people just rag on her in this movie she definitely has some ear piercing moments where I was like yeah you could have played that down a little bit more but Billy Bob Thornton has never been better when I saw this movie I, I was like, this is like De Niro caliber of a performance because I was worried that he was just going to play like the idiot a little too over the top because in the beginning he's like, oh, I, I don't know what this thing is and I'm 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 an idiot and it's just like, like the slow is not even the best way to describe his character, but then he changes and really shows a lot of depth, not just as a character but like as a as a human being who is 
really struggling with what the money is doing to him and his brother. So I, I don't. This movie to me is just watching the relationship to, between the two brothers makes it an enjoyable experience. But Raimi's really restrained in this movie. I mean, like I'm so used to him being all about you know little cool little camera tricks and 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 and, and po- point of view shots and crazy long tracking shots and stuff. But in this, he it's all about the story. It's all about the characters, and I love every frame of this movie. And we'll probably talk about it again at some point in the future. But a simple plan. If you if you all haven't seen that one, yeah, try actually, and find I actually it. Actually, haven't seen it, and I have one question now. Like, I, there are some directors I feel like when they're trying to prove that they can do something outside of their comfort zone, they always end up taking it too far in one direction or another. Like, I, I'd say my ultimate example of this would be uh, Woody Allen in Interiors, mm. where he's trying to, like, he said, Oh, I wanted to make a movie with no jokes. And he wanted to make a very serious Bergman like kind of drama. And it's actually, like, really kind of stayed and, like, you know, kind of stuffy and boring and. It's like it, it doesn't have the warmth and humanity that so many of his movies have. Would sit would like is Sam Raimi's style in um, um, in a Simple Plan? Is it too restrained? Would you say, or was it, did he did he find the right level? Like, did he find the right pitch for it? I think he found the right pitch for the story. Right. In terms of it being a Sam Raimi movie, I would say that it's a lot of more like Fargo. Right. And you know, in terms of the way it's directed. Like I said, there's not a lot of humor. I mean, there's certainly moments between the three of them, you know, joking about what we're going to do with all this money. There's 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 some comedy. I mean, they drink and they have some fun, but overall, it's really dark. It's really depressing. It's intense. Like, it has probably my... It could be my favorite confrontation in a movie ever, I think. there. I mean, I wouldn't give it away, but it, there, there's just a moment that takes place... In, it's a long sequence that takes place in the living room and the way Raimi lets it play out it's phenomenal and I don't know I just this movie to me like gets better with every viewing so have you seen A Simple Plan Andrew? I think that I saw it like right when it came out on on video Mm -hmm. maybe like 2000 or something but I don't really remember it that well I I I think I get this movie mixed up with um, that Nicolas Cage Dana Carvey movie (laughs) Trapped in Paradise? Yeah, because don't they find money in that movie too? Or something? Oh my and god! There's three of them. It's two guys and a girl. Which yeah, I seen in a long time. It's like John Lovitz. I, th- I don't know if it was. Yeah, and yeah. like on the cover of the both of the movies, oh, it's like god. three people, and I don't know. So obviously, they're not even close to the same thing. Really quick, I wanted to re- read the the horrible plot synopsis on the back. Oh, of Oh, that's this right. DVD. You're, you're telling me about this when I first came in. This this is a DVD that also needs to be put out on Criteria. There's no, no extras, nothing on it. It deserves a better treatment. But the synopsis reads: The American Dream in a gym bag. Finders keepers, maybe. <laughs> but first, they'll need a foolproof plan. So, they and the wife (laughs) of one of the men start out with a scheme that's perfect in its simplicity, but lethal in its miscalculation of the human heart. Mistrust, murder, and intrigue are all soon at work in this twist-filled thriller from director Sam Raimi of Darkman. (laughs) I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting, because I think think, think the synopsis of Fievel... Is also the American dream in a gym bag. <laughs> now you know why I got it mixed up with Trapped in Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I almost got it mixed up with eight heads in a duffel bag, but you know. <laughs> All right. Is this, not, is this something? Sorry, you have the DVD, but is it something that's on Netflix, like uh, Instant? Do you think? I don't think it's on Instant. No. Uh, I, it's well, just it's a DVD that's really like so bare bones, and me as a Raimi freak, I want more. <laughs> And I really wanted to hear about the author because he adapted his own screenplay, and it's almost like he took out the flaws from his own book when he adapted the screenplay, and I found that to be really interesting. So, I mean, I don't know. And and the author of this book, he also did The Ruins, which is another book that I pretty much read in, like, two days. I mean, I love this author. It's uh, His name is Scott B. Smith, but he's only done two books, and... They were both made into well. The Ruins is a good movie, not a great movie. Yeah. But, apropos yeah. of apropos of nothing, does anyone else love when someone's middle initial is B, and it sounds <laughs> and it's like, yo, man, Scott B. Smith. <laughs> like, that's what I always think of. Or anyone's middle initial is a B. I'm sorry. That's okay. So, what do you want to talk about, Patrick? Oh, um, actually, I only saw one movie since we last recorded. Damn. Um, yeah, I know. It it happens whenever I get caught up in the wire. And I know you just finished oh, yeah. the first season of yeah, the wire. The first season of wires. I don't want to talk too much good. about the wire. Um because I feel like everything that needs to be said about the wire has been said millions of times, probably far better than I could ever say it. It's the greatest show of all time. Um I I just I'm like it's somewhere in the middle of season 4, which is my favorite um season. And probably the most Dickensian, to uh, borrow a phrase from season <laughs> of five, the, the Dickensian aspect. But um, um, anyway, so I watch, I've been watching a lot of The Wire, and I just it's hard for me to put on a two-hour movie when instead I can watch 50 minutes of The Greatest Show Ever, and it's just so massively entertaining. But I did see a movie last night in theaters um, called Hannah, which is a movie that, honestly, I didn't have a lot of um, expectation for until I read a review, like... The, that very day, because the trailer makes it seem like it's a, it's an action movie. It's it's one of the typical. We trained her to be the very best assassin, and now we have to stop her. And you know she's using her training <laughs> against them. Um, it's actually really incredible. Uh, I obviously the movie just came out. Our our rule on the podcast is we don't like to spoil movies until they're at least two years old. Because I, I I don't I'm not big on I mean I'm not nuts about spoilers but I understand people don't want things being spoiled so I'm not going to spoil anything but the movie is a lot more interesting uh, like a lot funnier hmm, I wouldn't and, have thought that wow it's 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 very funny there's one character in particular again I don't want to spoil too much because part of part of what makes the movie great is it goes in a direction especially. See, early on, the whole um, the whole movie scored by the Chemical Brothers, and I wasn't a huge fan of the score, but I guess uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not ex- a huge fan I'm of... I'm excited about that. I'm not a big fan of the Chemical Brothers, and I, in general, I don't like techno scores. Like, mm-hmm. they just sort of... I, I, in general, actually, I don't like scores. Like, they just tend to be overpowering, and I think techno scores especially, they tend to just make everything feel like Run Lola Run. Um, and that was actually... <laughs> what I was going to say is that early on, there's a moment where... Um, this is like in the trailer, so she. So I'm not. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. But she escapes from like a facility, um, and uh, there's like, you know, Joe Wright who directed. He directed Pride and Prejudice. Uh, I haven't seen Atonement, and I haven't seen The Soloist, um, and I didn't really have a ton of interest in seeing The Soloist, but I still want to see The Atonement. I mean, Atonement. But you know, he he's sort of known for, you know, just making really beautiful movies and having everything well shot and very kinetic and. Technically proficient. Yeah, it's very technically proficient. Especially he'll he'll do long, long steady cam shots. There's a one Ooh, fight. There's I one like fight those. scene in this movie that 
it's one of those things like the first time I saw Children of Men where it's not until like it's already halfway done that you realize oh shit this has all been one shot <laughs> and it's and it's kind of I, that's my that's my like I would say that is my weakness that's I, your that's your porn yeah I don't <laughs> I don't care if it fits the movie or not if there's like a long steady cam shot I just go nuts um, there's a really great fight scene that's done in all in one take but anyway so early on in the well, movie wait wait till you see atonement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've yes. heard. Of, I've heard. There's like a World War II scene or something, mm-hmm. a battle scene that's. Um, I it's pretty, there, pretty I saw, breathtaking. Yeah, yeah, I saw like you know part of it on the, in the atonement trailer, and it looked pretty great. Um, so, but anyway, um, early on she escapes, and there's the techno music is blaring, and I feel Joe Wright maybe goes a little overboard with his. Uh, you know, I don't think he did it in Pride and Prejudice, but in this movie, it's a little overboard with the kinetic camera. Like there's part where the literally the camera's spinning around 360 degrees so and i was like oh is this going to turn into run lola run or cuz which is a movie that has a lot of fans but it's a movie i really hated um anyway but it it so you think it's going to be one way and it it turns out being like a lot more interesting and a lot more um there's like the characters are so richly are so rich and you you uh like you know the character of Hannah is so interesting because i mean the whole movie sort of feels like a like um it's about homeschooling where <laughs> no, it's, i wouldn't have thought that but, yeah no yeah. it feel, it's about homeschooling because it's about how she's been trained to be this killer and she's been trained to be proficient in pistols and to know like she knows like the population of every city and she you know so almost sounds, has, it almost reminds me a little bit of Kick-Ass, though, with the Nicolas Cage tra- training... What's her name? Uh, a little... I mean, obviously, the movies are nothing alike in right. tone or anything, yeah. but, yeah, it's a little bit a, like that. Interesting idea. It's a little bit like that, but unlike something like Hit Girl, where the whole the whole movie almost feels like a creepy fantasy, <laughs> where it's like, oh, yeah, 12-year-old girls killing people. It's fucking cool and awesome. Like, Hannah feels <laughs> like a really fully developed character and once she's out on her own like she begins to realize that she's not everything that she was trained to be and hmm. there's that struggle she feels um uh Kate Blanchett's in it she's amazing uh I'm not actually t- super familiar with a lot of Kate Blanchett's movies I mean I've I've seen my handful I've seen you know Lord of the Rings and Elizabeth yes um but you know she's going to but she's like really really good in this um again it's a character that it's the typical uh she's after you know it's like the typical villain character in this kind of movie where she but she really gives her a lot more to it than that everyone and it felt a little bit like a Besson, like a is that's how you pronounce his name Luke Besson or Besson I think it's Luke Besson but I'm not sure mm-hmm. Luke Besson That's how I always said it Besson. Besson all right um but and not just like you know like not not just the professional where um, you know, where, oh yeah, Natalie Portman's dream trying to kill her. It's 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 just about how it t- it takes these sort of you know this kind of crazy plot, and but it gives it real depth and emotion. And the characters have interesting lives, and they're they're very interesting, weird characters on the side of things, hmm. like a like a Fifth Element where you just see parts of unusual people, and you see parts of what their what else their lives are. <laughs> um, that's like one of my favorite parts of Fifth Element is the world creation in that movie is so interesting. And I think that's the movie's the same way. Like there's hitmen that are, that are after her and they, you know, they're not just badass hitmen and they're not just goofy Tarantino wisecracking hitmen. They're just very strange. Um, 
So I excellent, excellent movies. Definitely the best movie I've seen this year so far. I haven't watched a whole lot. I didn't watch Rango or The Adjustment Bureau or some of the other movies that people have said are really good. But this is like the first movie I saw this year that really got me excited. Oh, well, I guess Rubber. But Rubber oh. Rubber is a lot of mix. <laughs> that movie is ridiculous. Yes, it is. But Rubber is just another movie we were talking about earlier. Like where just everything about it hits me in the right way. Mm-hmm. But there, at no point would I like be confused if someone hated that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's Hannah. You need to see Source Code, by the way, Patrick. Yeah, so I know. We'd have, we'd have a good talk about that one. I heard so. bad things about the ending, though. Yeah, I have issues with it, but we, we don't want to... It's one of those movies where you can't really talk without spoiling it, All I right. think. I just... Yeah, I totally. heard Duncan Jones didn't write it, so... Yeah. I was sort of... And you can tell... It was, it didn't, and also, it seemed like the exact plot of Deja Vu with Denzel Washington. It's ex- it's like a Quantum Leap episode, which is... I loved it. <laughs> you know? I mean, if you're going to make a 90-minute Quantum Leap episode, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. I mean... It definitely recycles a lot of other movies that are better, but hey, it, it, it appeals to my what I like I'm in sure, general. I'm sure when it hits Netflix Instant or it's on HBO or something, I'll see it's it. It's fun. Down. It's a good diversion. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, Andrew, what movies did you see uh, recently? Uh, yeah, well, the, actually, the, the two most recent ones I've seen are both um, theatrical releases. They're in, in theaters right now All right. Um, that I have not talked about on the Cinecast, just for we didn't have time or whatever. Um, but one is I did see Jane Eyre. Oh, I can't um, wait to see that. Yeah, it's pretty good. Like uh, I kind of expected sort of the Joe Wright, Pride and Prejudice, Atonement mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. And it it's sort of that, but it's a lot more, it's a lot less sweeping. It's much more um, confined, claustrophobic almost, very mm-hmm. cold, dark. It's not gorgeous. Like I kind of wanted there to be some a lot more of the the big sweeping shots and the, of the countryside and whatnot, but it's much more, everything's in small rooms, uh, all the characters are very confined, and it's pretty much a, a dialogue-driven film. Um, and then it's just got the very slightest of creepy elements to it. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not quite like Black Swan or or anything like really scary, but there is just this sort of element and sometimes a tone that sneaks into the movie and gets a little bit creepy. <laughs> um, and one weird thing is about it is that they threw in a bunch of jump scares. Well, not a bunch, maybe like <laughs> two or three jump scares. Interesting. Which it was, didn't really, to me, it didn't really fit with the rest of the movie. I it was kind of odd because who wrote who wrote not, the who wrote the original Jane Eyre? Do you know uh, Bron- Bronte? Okay, yeah, so that that was Bronte. Um, yes. Yeah. That you know, actually, I remember Bronte was a really big fan of the um, literary trope of cats jumping out of closets. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of what we had here. Yeah, that makes sense. I, maybe they just wanted to add like a gothic sort of element. Yeah, to, well, that weird it. kind of element to the movie is that like a, like a sort of sense of foreboding, like dread. Would you say? Um. No, it's more like just kind of trying to give it a sense of mystery, I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> the story is, yeah, Jane, if you don't know, Jane Eyre um, was essentially grew up in an orphanage. Her parents died. Um, and then she she runs, she gets away from the orphanage and takes a job as like a personal assistant to a very rich, wealthy man played by uh, Michael Fassbender. Oh, mm-hmm. he's awesome. And they sort of develop 
um, kind of a strange relationship, like not lovers exactly, just uh, he likes her, he, he respects her, and that's not something that she's used to um, growing up in an, in an orphanage. Um, and the girl is played by, Jane Eyre is played by Mia Wysokowska. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Yeah. But she was in Alice in Wonderland. And the kid's um, all right. She was the lead. And the, the kids are the, all right. The yes, girl, yeah. which was also great. She she was fantastic. Both of them were fantastic in this film. Um, and there's a little bit of Jamie Bell in there, too, who he has, seems to have really come into his own. Like, he's hmm. a man now. Oh, wow. <laughs> what what else is he in? He was in uh, he Billy, was Billy Elliot. Elliot. Oh, there you go. And he was also, he's great in Undertow, which is another David Gordon Green movie that I love. Yeah, totally. He's actually in a bunch of stuff. Like, I mean, he's in Jumper. Um, (laughs) He he pops up every now and then, but this is the first time I've seen him since Billy Elliot, like, really doing something special, I thought. So hopefully this will get him some sort of lead in something. Um, But I don't know, if if you like, if you like sort of these dialogue-driven period pieces. I do. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's quite good, but it's again, it's not Joe Wright, Pride and Prejudice. Like, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of attention to really pretty scenes, or or scenery or set design. I mean, I guess it is in its own way, like the costuming and and the all the attention that goes to these sorts of period pieces with props and whatnot. But it doesn't really focus on that all that much. Um, yeah, it's. I, I didn't love it, love it, but it's it's pretty good, and um, it's essentially a, a an actor, an actor's piece. Well, I'm I'm all for that. Who who directed it? Carrie Fanuga. Hmm. Fanuga. Who I don't even know who that is. I think this might be a directorial debut. Oh wait a minute. Oh no no she He'd, did Sinombre. Oh yeah Sinombre yeah. Which I have not seen, but I've heard great things about it. it. Yeah, that's really great. Oh, absolutely. I'll t- okay. Yeah, no, so Sinombre is excellent. It's on, it's on Netflix Instant for, yeah, for my, people my to girl, check it out. My girlfriend is definitely a big fan of the uh, period drama, so I'm sure she'll get me to see this. Yeah, it's well worth a look. All right, then. Cool. Um, the other thing I saw was Win Win with I'm Paul I'm very Giamatti. excited about this one. I love yeah, Paul Giamatti, so. Me too. Uh, you know, if you'd ask me, like, 2006, 2007, he, I would have said he's, like, my favorite actor. Um, this is one of those movies where, like, if you watch the trailer, it looks so typical and safe mm-hmm. and standard. Like that's what I was thinking. The, yeah, down and out kid joins the wrestling team, and Paul Giamatti shows him the path. Right? It's not really like that at all. If anything, it's it's a little bit more like maybe like Half Nelson, where as you get <laughs> going into the movie, it's it's more Paul Giamatti who's really the troubled one and kind of getting himself into um, into some problems like the kid is just kind of a one of the typical estranged teenagers like he, he kind of ran away from his mother but it's because his mother had major problems too so he's just trying to find himself and um, it, it, it's a lot more interesting and intricate story than the trailer and the marketing really lets on there's a lot of dynamic going on between sort of three different levels of family mm-hmm. um, and they all intertwine together and just the wrestling aspect is just kind of what keeps it together I guess so it kind of keeps the characters together um, and I really liked it like the more I think about it actually the more I like it because it's like I said it's just not the typical safe thing uh, 
that I had expected it. That's to how be. I felt about um, Thomas McCarthy's last movie, The Visitor, with uh, Richard Jenkins. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Yeah, totally. I totally like. I saw it and I really liked it, but the more and more I thought about it, it, it grew in my mind, and I just went, "God, that's a fucking great movie," especially yeah. for acting. Um, I mean, I like that he threw in, you know, a little social commentary with um, immigration, but it was really, it's really about these awkward guys who are desperately trying to make some kind of family in their life. Mm -hmm. And I really respond to those types of movies where it's like these, you know, socially awkward kind of schlubby guys who, you know, are, are really trying to connect with more than just themselves and they do, <laughs> so it's like you know hopeful. But I, I also like it when those movies are sort of a cautionary tale too of what can go wrong when you're so focused on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, everybody in this movie makes mistakes, and they learn from them. And I, that sounds just as corny as can be, but I don't know. It it seems to really work. Well, listen to this cast: Paul Giamatti, Amy Ryan, Jeffrey Tambor, oh. Burt Young. And Melanie Linsky, I really like Melanie Melanie Linsky. She's what was cool. she in? She's been in a ton of stuff lately. She was the wife in the informant. She was oh. in Away We Go, and she was uh, in Heavenly Creatures as oh, Kate Winslet's right. friend. <laughs> you know who I always remember her as? The girlfriend in Detroit Rock City. Oh, yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought of that movie in forever, oh, but my yeah. God. That was yeah. That was one of those movies that she's so cute. <laughs> I like her. That was one of those movies. It was for some reason it was Detroit Rock City and Suicide Club. That I had this friend, and he would just he had obsessed with movies, and he like just specific movies, and he would just quote them endlessly. For some reason, like he wasn't even a Kiss fan, but he was just got obsessed with Detroit Rock City, and he would. <laughs> I like so there was like a good six months of my life where I just kept hearing Santa, Satan, same letters, same guy. Oh, I'm cured. Like I heard that quote like forty times a day for six oh my months. God. Um, that's Actually, funny. in the uh, not to um, you know put a pin in your balloon or whatever, yeah. but she actually is not that good in in this. I thought she was kind of that's too bad. I don't contrived and maybe trying a little bit too hard. There have been moments she's actually not yeah. in the that much. No, there have been moments where I haven't liked her. I, I haven't. Movie, I didn't. I didn't see the visitor, but I kind of felt the way you, the, the, what you said about like how the trailer makes win-win look kind of just you know very typical and mm-hmm. and easy. That's kind of how I felt about uh, the only other movie I've seen by this director, The Station Agent. Um, oh yeah, which I thought was a pretty good movie as well. Yeah, it wasn't I, bad, and I liked the performances. I'm a really big fan of Peter Dinklage, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, but it's just I was I just thought the movie itself was just sort of it, right. it felt to me like a debut, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, and it was and I think he really stepped it up with with The Visitor okay. even more so. He, so he's one of those directors that all of his titles are those little the indie hit like this is going to be big <laughs> at Sundance. It's right. That right. kind of movie. But I don't know with win-win it it is that. I mean I I can't say that it isn't. It is, but I don't know. It just seems to get at a little bit deeper issues than, than you would think. And you it's, know, it's t- funny too. It's also very funny. It's got a lot of great move- moments. The um, Bobby, Bobby Cannavale or whatever I can never pronounce his name, but he's a character that shows up a lot as like yeah. Can't think of like what, a, what else like I've a seen. Cop or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As I'm watching it, I'm I'm thinking, God, I know I've seen this guy in like a hundred different things, but I can never. I can never 
like come up with what he, who he is. He's always like a character actor in just a ton of stuff, yeah. like as the Italian kind of goofy guy. Wow, he, he looks he looks sort of like Ray Romano's brother in Everybody Loves Raymond. He's kind of that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I know who you're talking about now. Uh, I'm sure if I just anyway. All, all I have to do is look up which episode of The Sopranos he's on, and then I'll know who you're well, talking about. You know, you know who the director, uh, Thomas McCarthy, is on The Wire? He's he's Scott Templeton on The Wire. Oh, really? Yeah. That's him? Yeah. That's great. I know. <laughs> he also it's, This is weird. He played a character named Dr. Bob in two separate movies. Jack Goes Boating. Uh-huh. And Little Fockers. Well, I love Jack Goes Boating, <laughs> but I did not know that it was a Little Fockers spinoff. Yeah, I guess so. He plays uh, he plays Doctor Bob in two separate movies, so that's interesting. I don't know. I'll, I'll definitely check this one out. I've heard nothing but good things about it. Yeah, so. win win. It's worth checking out. It's it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Sweet, good to hear. All right, excellent. So uh, that's the movies we watched this week. So I guess we have nothing left to do now but to go into uh, Pedro Almodovar. Before we go into the films, I thought we'd go have a little history of Almodovar. Um, the history isn't always interesting. I think John McTiernan's history, he went to film school, <laughs> and then that's it. But it wasn't very interesting. But Almodovar has an interesting history. He was born in, Wikipedia says it's either 1949 or 1951. Apparently there's debate there, <laughs> which is kind of cute. Um, and uh, in the uh, late 60s, um, he moved to Madrid to become, he wanted to be a filmmaker. But by that time, the uh the National Film School had actually been shut down by the government, um, just just by lack of funding or whatever. So um, he, uh, you know, he he didn't have anywhere to start. He had to sort of teach himself. So yeah, he you know he had he got odd jobs uh, like he sold stuff at flea markets, and then he got a job as a he worked for a telephone company as an administrative assistant, and <laughs> uh, he used his paychecks from the telephone company to make Super Eight um, short films. And uh, he would show him around at like parties and bars and stuff, and sort of he got a name for them because he would uh, he couldn't afford to record sound as well, so he would take a tape recorder and record his own music and do all the voices for all the characters and just play that concurrently with his Super 8 films. And uh, eventually he had a reputation for them, uh, and then he was able to secure financing for his first feature film in 1980. And uh, he, you know, he he became a, you know, he he became he got a good reputation as a filmmaker, and then sort of internationally got a reputation in nineteen eighty in the late eighties. I can't remember the exact year with uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Okay, mm-hmm. that was nominated for Best Foreign Picture, and uh, after that, you know, he became you know one of Spain's biggest you know directors of all time. You know, right there with Luis Buñuel. So. Uh, the movie we're going to start with is uh, 1999's All About My Mother, and I, I think it's a fitting place to start um, because, uh, like so many of uh, Almodovar's films, the plot synopsis, like when you read it, it sounds completely fucking ludicrous. Um, it's it's about a woman who, she's mourning the death of her son, and she goes out to seek her, her his father, who is a, a transsexual actor in uh, Barcelona, 
and along the way she makes friends with a pregnant nun, a transsexual hooker, and a pair of actresses currently involved in a production of Streetcar Named Desire, and the relationships between them all get very complicated very fast, and I'd say one of the key influences for Almodovar's movies would be something like a, like soap operas and other kind of, you know, maybe Douglas Sirk and other melodramas. This, mm-hmm. this movie itself takes its title from All About Eve. Um, before, the title, <laughs> before the title comes up, the father, I mean, the, the mother and son are discussing, are discussing the title of All About Eve um, and how they change it for Spanish audiences. Um, and it's... And I guess I, I, I guess the only way I can describe you know, fi- the films he makes is just by describing what he's like as a filmmaker because he's very much a singular, um, you know, kind of auteur where um, he takes. I, I was thinking about like what who I would compare him to um, this this past couple several weeks as I was you know getting really into his movies and watching a lot of them and. I would say that I would almost compare him, not that their movies are similar, really, but I'd compare him to Quentin Tarantino in that Quentin Tarantino, he takes the, you know, these exploitation movies, these movies that are considered very base, low-level entertainment, and he gets inspiration from them, and he takes the parts he likes, but he um, he elevates them by genuinely good writing and good filmmaking, you know, which things you wouldn't normally associate with exploitation movies, and genuinely interesting characters and I'd say the same way Elmo Dovar does this with you know soap operas and melodramas where he takes these very lurid you know often very graphic and you know strange um, and shocking kind of plots that like I said that make no sense when you first hear them <laughs> you hear someone describe them and it's just oh well you see he uh, he had a sex change and he wrote a story about being inside of a story and uh and then uh, he falls in love with someone who had a sex change to look like him, and like you know he'll he'll just have these kind of ludicrous plots, but and he'll take sort of these you know kind of soap opera complicated relationships, but he gives them a real you know he's a superb filmmaker and he gives them a real human element that, despite you know being kind of crazy, you really honestly feel for all of the characters, um, and that's how I'd say all about my mother is uh, like um, where. I'd say that, that this movie. I'm I'm talking a lot. I not someone else wants to come in. <laughs> it's, I don't want to turn this into a monologue. Oh no! I mean, I echo pretty much everything you've said. I mean, I, I was definitely thinking um, more and more as I was watching Alma Dovar and responding to his films on such a visual level was uh, was David Lynch because Lynch is very inspired by by paintings and you know kind of the surrealist imagery of, of like Salvador Dali and mm, yes. you know a little bit of Picasso but it, it, it's it's just kind of like whereas Lynch sort of gets lost in his dreamlike imagery uh Almodovar uses his uses his imagery to emphasize you know the world that he's creating and the characters and I mean, at, at some points, like I do get confused when it comes to the storylines, but I'm so taken with where he go, you know, where he goes as a filmmaker. And I think the like kind of the central issue in a lot of his movies is the question of identity and what it means. And you know, he does a lot of gender bending, but I I, I respond to him on an emotional level though because of how. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Impressionistic, maybe? I don't know. Just of how, like, he's able to craft a scene in a very meticulous way and 
yet it still complements the story without overwhelming it. I feel I feel yeah, also another connection to David Lynch would be I think David Lynch is also inspired by melodrama. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, I think the closest I could find in David Lynch's, you know, Overwatch to this to to Pedro to Almodovar is Twin Peaks, which itself is extremely inspired by and tweaks kind of soap opera conventions and mm-hmm. even has that meta element where there's a soap opera within the show that is, is tweaks your your um, abbreviation for Twin Peaks? No, Twinks. Um, that would <laughs> Sorry, be t- that was I call, a terrible I call joke. It, I, Twinks is what I call it because <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> I really, I think I think my favorite part of Twin Peaks is just how um, all the young boys are hairless. Uh, no, but <laughs> no, but um, that's another thing that uh, Elmo Dover does a lot. It's he has a lot of meta elements where yes, people are obsessed with either movies or plays or they've written stories and what they have written comments not only on their lives but it comments on the actual film. Yeah. Um, Almodovar is in love with just expression in general, yes. whether if it's film, uh, theater, or, or books, or just storytelling in general. And he's really good at that, especially in he's, All About My Mother, where he sort of took a turn in that... I mean, yes, there's comedic elements in this, but he really wanted to pay attention to the humanistic side of things with both the movies we're going to talk about today. I mean, I think his, his earlier movies are definitely human, I mean, in terms of the stories that he's telling and the soap opera elements, but there was something about All About My Mother where I responded to it a little bit more than in, in terms of, like, the storytelling, and... As opposed to, like, um, what other movies that he's... Well, I, I I mean, Life Flesh is definitely a more straightforward kind of narrative, I think, for the most part. There's not a lot of surrealist imagery in it, which is what I really liked. Um, but All About My Mother, I really responded to, you know the camaraderie that is built between these characters as, as time goes on. I'm not sure if that was... I didn't watch Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, though, so I think Live Flesh is the only one. Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown is more of a... Sla- uh, not slapstick, uh, more of a screwball mm-hmm. comedy inspired, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. though yeah. it also has strong emotional elements. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. And I think, you know, if you watch all of Almodovar's films, one... one constant theme is women like he loves his women oh absolutely yeah and i think this is probably the strongest example of that where he everybody in here pretty much are all women um and there and you you kind of nailed it with the sort of soap opera-esque aspect or feel to this movie because there isn't really it's not like it's not like um, Live Flash. There's no villain, really. Mm-hmm. There's no good guy. You're not really rooting for... There's some people that you might like more than others, but essentially it's one big dynamic, and they're all trying to sort of get through life together. Um, and I think you also mentioned something about maybe not always being able to follow his stories. And I think it's because he is so meticulous, and he spends so much of his time uh, with details that he probably intentionally kind of forgets the bigger picture. Well, I think... Uh, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more and talk to her. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but even with All About My Mother and a couple other movies, like Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, um, more so with Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, uh, you're actually kind of lost or not quite sure where we are in the story or what exactly, who they're talking about. There's mm-hmm. so many characters, and they all come in so quickly... Um, you got to really pay attention. You got to really stay on board because so much of the dialogue 
is not really, really consequential to the story. It's consequential to who the character is. It's more, it's so much more on a human level than he's so much more interested in you feeling for these people, for these women, than it is really about trying to tell an overarching story. Yeah, I, at least that's what I kind of feel. Oh, like. absolutely. Yeah. And I think All About My Mother is a perfect example of that. Um, and I think actually one of the things that surprises me about how much I like um, Al Moldover's movies is I'm sort of, I've sort of noticed about myself that I really respond more to th- like sort of very straightforward films that have straightforward character arcs and story arcs and like the I like and he doesn't go for that at all. Right. Um and I th- I think all about my mother is just all about the themes and the emotions and that and I think most of his movies are like that in that his movies don't have they're not very tense, they're not very concerned about setting up you know, I think more maybe bad education because that's more of a Hitchcockian thriller in some ways. But even that it almost seems you know, for the kind of movie it is, it almost seems a little lackadaisical. And All About My Mother isn't a movie where it sets up stakes and then the stakes get raised and then there's a big, you know, emotional climax at the end and everything sort of crescendos. It's it's a lot messier than that because I think he's mostly concerned about the themes of what it means to be a mother and to be a woman. And to him, I feel being, being a woman, especially being a mother, is about giving of yourself and being selfless and being there and supporting someone else. And And he's such a talented visual storyteller um I, I i think he's a, he's he comes across to me as a really empathic oh yes. person as and, and a director and that sort of comes across in you know in sort of a parallel yeah, way like with, even, with motherhood it, like yeah like you mentioned you mentioned that you know like this doesn't have a villain like live flesh and i'd say even live flesh doesn't have a villain it, no, right. it has antagonists, mm-hmm. but he feels for every single one of them. And like even the opening shots of this movie, which are just extreme close-ups of life support systems, and then and then you realize that you're in a hospital, and it's about organ donor, like organ transplants, and it's the exact. It's it's all just about giving of yourself, and it's all about how you need people to be there for you, and how you need to be there for other people because without without having someone to look after your life is aimless. Um, and it's, and it's just a meditation on these themes as opposed to a story of one character or, um, you know, one kind of one very strict, straightforward plot. So there's almost like parts of it where I'm watching it and I'm going, all right, I'm not sure exactly where he's going with this Mm -hmm. because it's so much more of a meditation than it is a statement or anything. Um, and he loves, he loves women uh, he he has a lot of um, he is a, he's a gay director and he has a lot of uh, sort of gay themes and like you mentioned about identity there's a lot of um, you know transsexuals transvestites uh, sort of ideas about gender right and what it what they actually mean and how it's so much more than just the physical you know and it's a you know that's I think that's why that's another you know thematic reason he has there's there's a lot of transsexuals in this movie is because it's about it's not. It's not about being a woman. It's not about the biology of being a woman. It's about that feeling of being a woman. Right. It's about what it means on an emotional level to be a woman. He captures think, that emotional he, state really well. Definitely. He. He. I think he does a good job of getting you to sort of sympathize with these characters or, or get on board with people that might normally make some people feel uncomfortable. Because uh, it's not just all about my mother, but. Um, bad education. What I know, he's got transsexuals in 
you know several of his films and right. that might like turn people off and that it that also goes to like sort of odd looking characters as well i, I, I mm. like other than you know you've got penelope cruz here and the and the lead um but the other people that he casts in his film films are strange looking Un- I've, I've Uncon- noticed, unconventional looking I, i've noticed that yeah. too especially especially cuz the kind of movies they are the melodrama and the soap opera aspect you only associate with beautiful people yeah um, right but and it it that might turn that. people off initially but by mm-hmm. the end of it you kind of feel like wow i really got on board with this person it sort of makes you rethink sort of physicality yeah he he has he stated a um he stated that john waters is an influence and i feel that kind of he feels like inherently an outsider and i feel in in ways so instead of being about beautiful rich people and their beautiful rich problems that you know way a lot of melodrama or soap opera might be yeah. it's about you know he more sympathizes with these kind of strange unusual looking characters and but totally real world and believable at the same yeah. time. Yeah, um, it's, it's yeah, it's definitely heightened, but it's never surreal. Well, I, I mean, unless you like, there's sequences. Yeah, there's definitely sequences her, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, um, and it's such a he's such a talented visual storyteller in that I think a lot of story te- it's not necessarily even visual storytelling. It's more just you get exactly in the uh, headspace of the characters. Um, like in a big great example, of this would be like in Live Flesh. Um, there's the, you know, again, it's a very convoluted kind of scene where the boy just had sex with the girl and he wants to be with her, but she, it didn't mean anything to her. Mm-hmm. And then, and the cops are coming and they are having their own issues with each other. And it all ends in a clusterfuck where Javier Bardem gets paralyzed. Um, and then it cuts to several years later where the boy who accidentally shot Javier Bardem is in jail and sees Javier Bardem like on a wheelchair basketball team. And he's like a national hero, and it is like literally just a scene of him watching TV, and it tells you everything you need to know about where those characters are in their heads, where they, what has happened to them since, and it's it's literally just like forty five seconds, um, and it's and everything you ever need to know, and he knows exactly how to get you right inside the characters' heads, um, even if you don't necessarily know what their relationship is with all the other characters. Because he knows his characters so well, it seems, you know, and he's mm-hmm. he's really good at um, obviously the, the the sort of high contrast, and I don't know if that's uh, plays a role in every single movie he's done in terms of like you know the uh, the flashy art decoration and yes. the beautiful bright colors, the, uh, the, uh, all that the really set, is the set design. Beautiful. The set design always cracks me up in his movies because <laughs> all of all of the rooms uh, in like every apartment flat he he loves you know big up he big you know loves big like big loft apartments um and like all the rooms and all of those are always seem so over decorated and bright and garish and the, <laughs> the, the 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 clothes all the characters are wearing is very bright and, and again it's that eye for detail he's almost like the spanish douglas cirque in a way, <laughs> yeah you know? well it's yeah like... exactly it's it's that sort of it's that sort of influence for sure um yeah i the, his visual <laughs> Auteurism, if you will, I think right. it's really taken hold as of like nineteen, right around nineteen ninety. I think is where it really started to take hold. But like, I think earlier you mentioned like Dali or, or Van Gogh or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like Almodovar is a true film painter. Yeah. Um, you you met you said it. Every shot is like bright colors and overly saturated and whatnot. But it's also 
it's structured in such a way that it, like if you take out one little element it just it wouldn't be the same shot it wouldn't work he clearly has like an education of some kind in color theory or else he's just really naturally good at it but you know like there's these scenes where if you, almost every shot in every single one of his movies you'll see a little splotch of red somewhere Yes. Yeah. You take that little splotch of red out, and the whole shot is completely drab. It might be something as simple as a lady three blocks away with a big red shopping bag. And that's <laughs> deliberate that, that he put that in there. And I, I just love that kind of stuff. And, you know, and it's surrounded by a room that's turquoise and yellow. I mean, every time I look at every single one of his shots, I'm, mo- I'm less paying attention to the dialogue and what's going on and just looking at what's what the room looks like or what the shot looks like because it's just awesome and, he has, and one of the things I really love about his movies is he has such an astounding sense of humor and not that there's a lot of jokes like even in something like Women on the Verge and Nervous Breakdown which is very deliberately screwball comedy kind of paced and inspired like it's not necessarily even a lot of jokes it's just that he it's just very strange character quirks and very st- strange things that people say that just or kind of feel kind of slanted and like all of his movies I always have just this big grin on my face even though even if they're big and emotional and you know they're not they don't feel like a chore to get through at all <laughs> it's not I, I never I never feel I never feel like it's overwhelming because he has such a wonderful wit um, about it all I think all about my mother uh, definitely has that her um, her uh, her prostitute her transsexual prostitute friend just everything she says with a little, you know, it's a little sideways with a little grin, and she's gaming nuns in order to get, <laughs> in order to get work. Oh, I'm trying to get off the street, and um, and it's 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 it was nice. I think Penelope Cruz is really great in this. As a, I think mostly in American films, she's sort of because of her, you know, just extraordinary beauty. She's cast as sort of like a, you know, just a beautiful, you know, woman, and she and in this. She's she seems so much more innocent, and um, and you know she seems so much more naive, and it's and just sort of optimistic, and I really like just enjoyed her performance. And there's a scene where um, the actress, the that um, the main character, I can't remember any of the names. Uh, I'm that's one of my problems. Man- I have. Manuela. Okay, yeah. Man- the, the, the I can't. I don't know her real name. But yeah. yeah, the actress Manuela. that Manuela is um, mm-hmm. is working for comes by and they're all just drinking and they're all just talking and it's and it's like just this one moment where just everything is out where they're actually talking about being women and it's it's almost sort of similar like uh I'd say um jungle fever there's the one scene uh where all the wh- black women are together and they're just oh, yeah. talking sort of about the issues mm-hmm. but this feels like that mo- that felt like Spike Lee sort of putting the issues forward and this just feels like the characters putting themselves forward and it's it's such a wonderful scene um, and I just, uh, I just really enjoyed it the whole time. He he finds such a romantic element in even just motherhood, or you know, being able to console somebody, and the way the you know the lead character in this movie becomes, you know, um, what's the word for not paternal, not maternal mother, but I was thinking of uh, surrogate. That's the surrogate. word. Surrogate. Yeah, she becomes a surrogate mother, and. It, it seems like that th- that empathy is instilled into this character, and Almodovar knows how to, you know, convey that not just visually but through through the, the characters. And I, I I really respond to 
the fact that he's he's so responsive to women, and you know his little uh, thing at the end about dedicating you know all to all mothers and to all actresses who have played actresses and de- dedicating thing you know like Jenna Rollins <laughs> yeah. you know I was like that's so cool yeah, Bette I mean, Davis Gina Rollins and I can't yeah. remember the it was a very strange mix. Um, to I, all the people who want to be mothers, I right. think. <laughs> it, it's and it's just a love letter, and it's um, yeah. And I like that. I like the title so much because you it you you get the at first you think that the movie is going to be about the relationship between the son and the mother because the movie's called All About My Mother. So you you get this feeling that okay, so the main character is the one speaking the title, right? Um, and then you get the feeling. And he's a writer. Right. And <laughs> so he's I think he's, he's going to be right about his a, mother. He's a writer who's super inspired by Truman Capote um, and loves Tennessee Williams. And um, but and you get this, and then you get this feeling that the, then the title does two things. Number one, it you realize, oh, it's Almodovar saying all about my mother. It's it, that the whole movie is a love letter to women. It's not. It's not mm-hmm. one of the characters in the movie feelings about all of their mother. It's not. It's not me and my, you know, it's not my <laughs> dinner with Andre, you know, it's, um, yeah. it's about, and then number two, because you initially, at least this is how it worked for me, because I initially felt that it was, um, the, the son, the son saying it, that he, he, uh, you think about him the entire time throughout the movie, because she's also, she, like, his, he narrates parts of the film with entries from his diary from before he dies, um, and you just... And you get this feeling of, like, and that it, it uh, the feeling of loss, despite it not being the movie not being a meditation on loss, and despite you know the plot going you know far away from her trying to find the boy's biological father, um, you know, pretty early on, um, you still feel that sort of pain, and you still feel it. And there's one part where, um, where uh, uh, Penelope Cruz's mother. Who again? Another character that could have easily just been like a villain, but he has yeah. such empathy for her and knows what you know, and he feels her disappointment in Penelope Cruz just as much as he feels Penelope Cruz's frustration that her mother can't accept, um, you know, accept her situation. And there's a moment where the that where Penelope Cruz's mother goes, "You have kids," and he goes, "I had one, but he died," and she's like, "That's a shame," and then she leaves, and it's just. Like just saying that, you would think she hasn't mentioned the, her son like for a while. She, you know, she hasn't talked about him. There's not a lot of scenes of her weeping outside of when she first gets the news. Mm-hmm. But just like it, just it hit her all at once again, and she just breaks down crying after right after she closes the door. And it's such a powerful moment. Um, and it again, it's just, and again, it's just all about what it means to care and love someone that much, and to be responsible for someone and how people lean on each other and they take care of each other and you know that that to Almodovar is what being a woman is all about right and the and the actress during the play i think she has a moment where she talks about what it's what it takes to be an authentic woman and what's the price for it and it's like it costs a lot to be authentic and Almodovar clearly right <laughs> he, clearly, he strives for that she she points out cuz this is the um this is the transsexual who, uh, this you know, this is the transsexual who at one point, the the play right. Streetcar Named Desire gets canceled and she has to and she says if you want your refund you can but I could tell you my life story instead and you know she gets a standing ovation, um, 
and she's you know he, she so she's a transsexual so it's she's clear Amadora is clearly not talking about authentic in any traditional born a woman way right it's 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 all about to be an authentic woman it's about the feelings and emotions Authent- authentic to to what she feels the right. emotion that's at stake that's that's really what's important to him the visual and then the emotional component and that's and he, tell, he what tells I all to. that by doing just the opposite pointing out all the physical features exactly mm-hmm. and just by pointing all that out it's you learn about the person's inside yeah, definitely. It, it's funny. It's like it's hard to talk about the movie because you, 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 we've said that it's it's almost like talking about Almodovar's filmography as a whole is more interesting than talking about just one particular movie. Yeah. yeah no, seconds. absolutely. It's, like, it, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like everything that he's about is kind of encompassed within this movie, and within this movie not much happens <laughs> so right with, it, it, i mean you can you feel it and you can and talk about your feelings but like really i mean unless it's very hard to intellectual character, there's it's all about just what you take away from it and you can't always put that into words yeah it's not something that is easily intellectualized it's not yeah. it's not about grand themes and ideas it's just all about the emotion and the feelings and um, Much like discussing a comedy, it's like, well, it made me laugh. Right, and, but <laughs> you, know. you, you telling the parts that were funny isn't going to be the same. It's exactly. just exactly, it's exactly like that. That's why reviewing comedies is not really fun unless you're going to go through and go, oh, remember that scene? That was funny. Remember that scene? That was funny. Yeah, it just doesn't. It's not doesn't work. I, I think there's a. I mean, obviously, there's a little bit more in all about my mother than just a simple comedy in a series of. I don't know, anecdotes or whatever, but but yeah, it's along those same lines, I think. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like, there are exceptions to that, like Talk to Her, I think there's a lot more going on there. There's a lot more issues and things you can get into. Yeah. Something like that. I think we should get into uh, Talk to Her. Um, right after winning the Oscar for All About My Mother, Alma Dovar chose to cover um, some more soap operatic territory with Talk to Her, in which two men share um, an odd friendship while they care for their girlfriends, who are both in deep comas. Uh, Benigno and Marco cross paths when they attend the same concert, only eventually meeting again at a private clinic where Benigno works. And there he's the uh, personal nurse and caregiver for Alicia who is a beautiful dance student, and she's currently in a coma. And Benigno has a a rather unusual infatuation with her. And that sort of plays out. And uh, Marco is there to visit um, his girlfriend Lydia, who is a famous matador who is also comatose. And these two men sort of um, try to not only, you know come to terms with not being able to communicate with with these two women in particular, but they sort of deconstruct their past um, and the story unfolds in very interesting, detailed flashbacks, and we learn about the two relationships that they had 
and what it means to, you know, try and reconnect again um, internally with with the women. And I think those that type of need for um, communication when that is severed, how do you uh, articulate that? And these two men sort of, you know, carry on a communicative uh, relationship that is really um, interesting to uh, to talk about. But overall, it's once again Almodovar sort of touching on the need to empathize with uh, with women in general. But uh, I mean, he ha- has an extremely uh, fascinating surrealist moment involving um, a story that is. Um, told by Benigno. And is it a story? I thought it was like a film he saw. Was it a film he saw? I yeah, I guess so. I think it was a so. silent, it yeah. was shot in the silent film style. Right, right. And that, uh, that's one of the most memorable things I've ever seen in a film. There's, yeah, it there's, says volumes it's, about men. It's a, it's a very, you know, it's... it's <laughs> in a lot of ways. It's, it, um, there's two set pieces that blow me away. There's that, yeah. and then there's the opening, the, the play that they meet at. Yeah. Um, that you told. Then this is the opening in the movie, and I literally, again, as a visual storyteller, not so much telling, setting up the story as far as who these characters are, what their relationship with everyone is, what what has happened so far. It's not ex- in an exposition way, mm-hmm. but thematically, the opening. It's they're they're at a ba- it's either a ballet or some kind of dance uh, performance, in which two women. They are. Are they blindfolded? Or are they just their eyes are closed? Yeah, they're just kind of wandering around. Okay, looking, yeah, like sort of spirits in a way. Yeah. They are wandering around without seeing, and there's and there's a man, uh, and there it's a in a the stage is full of chairs, like in a row, like maybe like in an AA meeting or something. But mm-hmm. they uh, and they're wa- they're wandering around, and the man has to very quickly rush and knock the chairs out of their way, so they don't bump into him and trip and fall over. Yeah, and it. It was like literally before I even knew necessarily what the movie was about. I, like I instantly knew, like you know, even before I knew that this was exactly what the movie would be, and this would be like sum up all of the movie's thematic. And by the way, how brilliant, you know, just to sum up all of, sort of its thematic concerns, you know, in the opening forty-five seconds, you know, the opening couple minutes or whatever. But like it was really moving, and you know, I, 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 I'm not sure if I was moved to tears, but I was, you know, I was close to it. It was, um, because it's about, you know, it's desperately trying to help these women and trying to protect them, but not knowing how. And it's about the devotion, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's it's just about de- again, it's it's not about it's not it, it's about dedicating yourself to someone, and not in a way like all about my mother. Um, it's a, it's about losing yourself in another person. Literally, literally, yeah, literally <laughs> and, in terms of the second set piece, um, and how the fine line between devotion and obsession sort of plays within, you know, the mind of somebody who's very vulnerable, who hasn't had a lot of experience with women, and is consistently fascinated by them, especially well, obviously this one in particular, to where he you know crosses a lot of boundaries. And you wonder, well, is this guy, you know, a, a creepy sociopath of some kind? No, he's just a really, he's kind of a simpleton who, I think, you know. Well, I think, I think the difference is, I think Almodovar, I think he may be a socio, creepy sociopath, but Almodovar yeah. has such empathy with him that. Yeah. 
Like, Maybe. I, if you just heard about the things he did... Yeah, and, no, you're and right. what mm-hmm. he says about the things he did and his justifications, you would think he's a sociopath. Well, he's delusional, for sure. He, Yeah, he... Yeah, I think he's... As you watch the film, you're this is the guy you're kind of rooting for and you're sort of friends with. Mm-hmm. But looking back on it, he is creepy as hell. Yeah. There, there's that <laughs> yeah. scene where he's in her apartment and grabs yeah. the the clip and then he just has, says don't be alarmed I'm not going to hurt you and then he just walks out that yeah, yeah. weird even before mm-hmm. things like he starts crossing the line as her caregiver um you know uh yeah, I, he's definitely kind of really creepy and like the way he is handling her it seems so um clinical but at Knowing yeah. everything you know of by the end, you look back and go, oh, that was just the way he manhandles her. That's kind of just weird. Yeah. It has to be done. I understand. Like, he's, like, massaging her legs and cleaning her breasts and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, cleaning up after she's had her period. By the way, but, all the logistics of dealing with coma patients, things I just never even thought of. Yeah, which I know. Like, I found oh, kind of fascinating. It makes complete sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you're watching him perform these acts, you're thinking, oh, yeah. That makes sense that somebody would have to do this. Okay. Right. But I don't know. Knowing what you know at the end, it's all kind of weird the way he stalks her and yeah. behaves and there was, around her. There is actually another. Hmm? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, that's it. Uh, oh, okay. Even when she's not in a coma, like the way he's sort of obsessing over her Absolutely. is not normal. Um, and the, there was actually another point of comparison I would make with Quentin Tarantino in that. I feel like the way Quentin Tarantino uses violence, it always expresses something about the characters. Like, you know, there's such a huge difference between something like Kill Bill and something like Machete. Though <laughs> they're basically, like, they're both sort of inspired by the same movies, and they're both sort of, you know, fun, flashy, stylistic odes to violence and, and cinema and stuff. I feel like he's able to give these acts such emotional heft so they're not just gratuitous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel the same way about Elmo Dovar and sex. Um, now, the two movies we're, we're discussing, uh, I'll about my mother and uh, talk to her, are both rated R, but he has a fair amount of movies that are NC-17. Um, because, oh, yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't, you know, Bad Education, uh, Live Flesh, um, I believe tie, maybe High Heels or Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Um, I think one of those is also an NC-17 because he has a very frank graphic sort of way with dealing with sex. But it's never gratuitous in any way, um, and I feel the same way about, like, there there are scenes where it's just lingering on her naked body and him rubbing her naked body down, you know, giving her a sponge bath, and it never, uh, like, you feel the sexual tension there, and, you know, it's, it's but it's it doesn't feel exploitative in any way. Um, oh, it's, it's kind of clinical and icky at the same time. Right, yeah. but but what you're like, necessary. it's not. But like, it's not there to titillate the audience. It's there to tell you something about that character. Right, Absolutely. you know, and the and the fact that he has has had has had very little interaction with other women. It's, you know, you you kind of wonder. Well, <laughs> where is he going to go? I mean, how is, is he just really going to go off the deep end? And you know, at, at some point, it, it's like I want to sympathize with him because it's like, yeah, you know, I've. You know, had moments where I'm like, I'm really fixated on one person, and I'm, I can understand that behavior. But then, you know, once you find out what he does, it really like takes a turn. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you, it kind of builds up to that t- to some degree, but it's also 
Almodovar is not going to damn him for it either. The, like he doesn't judge him. I mean, obviously, yeah. what he did is despicable, but he has this. <sighs> Almodovar has this insane balancing act with tone. Yeah, I know. Where never once does it feel like, oh boy, this is getting creepy. Like it feels creepy and weird, yeah. but it you never are taken out of it to the point where. The, the point of the movie is you watching the depths that this person will go. You never stop empathizing. And to the point where, even after that reveal, like, obviously, it, it's it, it's shocking. Um, and do, I guess I should ask you guys before we reveal it, um, do you think we should go ahead and say what happens, or? We can. I think I at this think point. I mean, yeah, fair warning. I mean, it's a movie that's almost ten years old at this point. Right. Yeah. And I, I also think it's I mean, maybe outside of Volver, I, this has got to be uh, Almodovar's most widely seen, probably yeah, most probably accessible his, film. Probably his most beloved, I think, too. I think, too. Yeah, you ask most people what's their favorite Almodovar film, most people will, first of all, they'll say, who's Almodovar? <laughs> if you know him, we'll say, probably talk to her. I think that seems to be the Which is where I, I fall. Really love this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the, yeah, this one, this one best, uh, best I believe original screenplay. Yes, um, which is very impressive for any movie, let alone a, a foreign language film. Um, I believe the only other movie that's done that is Pan's Labyrinth, but I could be wrong there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but um, anyway, so the uh, the the girl he is obsessed with in a coma gets pregnant. He because you know he it's rape. You know she can't <laughs> give consent, so. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't call it something else. They call it rape, you know. And mm-hmm. it's this borderline thing where you it crosses the line between you feel okay. I knew he was creepy, obsessed with her, and I knew he had problems. But once you, and, but like even after learning he was a rapist, <laughs> which is what he is in this movie, it's I you're, my sympathy never left him. Well, that's because his friend, too. Like, the sympathy never left him. Right. Um, the friend that he connects to that they met in the play is the only one who stands by him after this happens because he knows him. And he knows that, no, there, this wasn't a... This was this was an act of love in... Um, what's, I'm sorry, what's the, what's the character we're talking about? It's mine. Uh, ben, Benino. Ben, Benino. Benino, okay. Yeah, Benino. This was an act of love in Benino's mind. This was right. not an act of violence or an act of sex. This was like he needed to consummate his relationship with her mm-hmm. because he loved her so much. He needed to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't about a sexual gratification. No, no, it's not. It's he's not to, to bring up to bring up Quentin Tarantino again. He's not Buck, and he's not here to fuck. You know, it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's something very different. And so you're so, and, but the fact that you can fully know. Like it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't pull a rug out from under you. You know that he has problems, and it doesn't. You're kind of thinking maybe this is happening, or maybe it isn't happening. But you never leave. He never leaves your sympathy. It's just because Almodovar is such an em- empathetic director that you, you know, he feels for this this character, and um, and again, I, I think he plays with ideas of gender, um, with. The other man, um, his his girlfriend who is in a coma, is a bullfighter, right? You know, and she she has problems, and, he, and even just having a male nurse, right? She yeah, 
Because a lot of people frown upon that for some reason. And again, it's about his devotion to her, and she is a bullfighter. She's very, you know, she's... Again, I feel, you know, using words like masculine and everything seem counterproductive, but it's it's very deliberately setting him up to be the the person who, you know, takes sort of the traditional female kind of role where she is famous and she is very talented and she's doing this very manly sort of the ultimate sign of masculinity and you know sort of Spain is you know the bullfighting um and 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 it's and it's about his devotion to her and again I think it's sort of like playing with ideas of gender in that way um absolutely and I don't think you should be scared of the masculinity mm-hmm. word um uh, because the she's clearly um you know, as a bullfighter, that's something of the man's world, which they which world. they address and, in the mm-hmm. movie. Definitely, she, and, you know, and she. Here we go with the sort of odd-looking characters again. Right, she yep. is she is kind of manly. She's very muscular. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got that kind of strange face. Um, and then when you start talking about like gender roles and and not only roles but relationships as well, once these two women go into a coma, like I kind of felt a little bit of like homoeroticism tension too between the two guys like i oh definitely yeah. a couple times especially I, I, I especially thought, later in the film their their devotion like to each other at the jail and stuff mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure uh, but even like especially with benino's character like i almost feel like he is and i don't know maybe this is just my weird prejudices or whatever um stereotypes coming through but i almost feel like he he seems like a gay character it's just for one reason or another, he's uh, uh, attracted to Alicia as a dancer. But it seems to me like he really does want to have some kind of relationship with Marco. I don't know. Did you maybe. feel like that at all? I mean, I, maybe I, it's just his mama's boy. Yeah. Of, well, he's got a very effeminate qualities, and, and that's actually why um, that's that's why the the dancer's father like lets her continue to be his male, you know, be home right now because. He he was previously her psychologist. Again, we're yeah. getting into the complicated sort of plots where everyone has these complicated relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was probably previously her psychologist, and so he tells you know he tells him that oh I'm 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 gay. So, but yeah. I think I think that's sort of what Elmo Dovar is going for is this idea that it isn't a binary kind of a thing, where this is a gay character, this is a straight character, this is a man, this is a woman. It's a lot more fluid. Yeah, there's no black and white in an Elmadova. You know, because it's all he grays. Is, he is a <laughs> he is a fey character, um, and but even but I would say that the the person he befriends I'm, again. Sorry, I'm terrible with the character names. What's the Marco? Marco. Okay, yeah, Marco is not a fey character anyway. He's a very you know masculine character, but Marco shows so much more devotion to um, Benino. Benino. I keep trying to say Benini, and then I, <laughs> this is we're not Wrong we're not country. on that we're not, we're not on that episode yet. Like he <laughs> he's the one who has the um, he has the devotion to Benino, and he's the one who is going to great lengths to protect Benino and to fight for Benino and to make sure that Benino doesn't get screwed. And well, it's almost like they both have this unattainable love that can't be expressed, and so in a way, it manifests itself between the two of them even though if it's not physical you know it's like there's there's some sort of need for an intimate connection it doesn't necessarily mean sexual and it, and that's what i find really interesting about the lead right, character he, he says as much in the jail he says all i want to do is hug you 
Yeah. Uh, right. You know, it's yeah. nothing. And if I have to tell them that you're my boyfriend just to, to hug you, like, that's all he wants is some sort of human interaction. Right. And Absolutely. he never had that before. I mean, he was just taking care of his mother. And now all of a sudden he gets this flood of, you know, um, emotion directed towards, you know, someone who can't reciprocate. And I feel, yeah, and it's actually kind of very similar thematically to All About My Mother in that it's just about losing yourself in devotion. And of course, the greatest metaphor for that would be the silent film, science fiction film he watches, um, the, we, we, that we were, the set, you know, that we are talking about where the man shrinks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, lost me for a second. Awesome um, scene. Yeah. Where it's like that whole sequence is the film again. It's the film in a nutshell, and it's so brilliant about a about a scientist who's developing developing a potion. I forget what the intention of the potion. I think it's like a weight loss thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just starts to shrink, and he as he shrinks, he becomes more and more reliant on his assistant, who he's in love with. I'm not sure if it's assistant or girlfriend. I the details I can't remember so well, but and in the end. He, you know, he has shrunk to maybe an inch tall, maybe even shorter, and he's just, and he climbs inside of her, um, you know, in inside of her vaginally, um, to to stimulate her and to make her feel, you know, good, and then he disappears inside of her, and it's just about this feeling of more and more needing someone and shrinking into them, and then just eventually, you lose yourself inside of them. It's like. The kind of empathy that consumes you, <laughs> right? Exactly, and, and I and I think that's a, a, kind of a constant theme in, in Almodovar's work, is that like, you know, y- you can have all this love, you can have this compassion, but you got to be careful <laughs> because and, it can get you into trouble. Still, and what makes the story work so well is that because these two women are in a coma, you don't think about it from their side at all. Mm-hmm. They're not. Like, it, it and he's com- mostly been interested in the past in the, the female perspective, their, well, right. their side of communication. And again, I, I, I think there still is the same themes. It's, you know, yeah. it's not, again, he doesn't have exactly traditional views of, you know, male, what it means to be male and what it means to be female. And I, I think he's tackling some of the same themes, even though the main characters are men. But because the women are in comas, you don't even think about them you don't think of it as a relationship at all it completely makes you focus on their on the men's devotion and their obsession and the way that they've built their entire lives around this person mm-hmm. like he he wasn't married to her he doesn't need to be there um all this t- you know especially in the in Benino like he doesn't need to be there um and uh Marco also just wasn't married to her but the family stopped showing up after a while but he's always there because that's what his life is now. And without yeah. her being an active part, he has to do everything now. And it's and it's all about that transition, which is why the sort of the, the idea that it's about women in a coma is so brilliant. Well, even just, you know, the opening scene, like you said, of how moving it is just to watch the two men themselves, they're shedding tears. And even, you know... I, I think a I lot think, of people. I think Marco sheds tears, but but you know. Oh, okay, yeah, maybe. I think because I think I think the difference, and I think that also illustrates yeah, the difference between that's the two. Because I think say something, yeah. I think Marco is shedding tears mm-hmm. because he recognizes he sees himself there. Yeah. I don't think Benino is that self-aware. Right. Um, I think Marco, you know, he's more wary of becoming obsessed, and he's sort of realizing how much he's built his life around her. But I think Benino is self-aware, and I think that's the main difference between the two. Is that Benino will cross those lines, and because he just thinks he's in love, like that's mm-hmm. 
But even from just Benino's just wants to know what love is. It's right. like the foreigner song. Yeah. Yeah. Um and <laughs> I love how I love how each sort of segment in the movie too is is split up between two characters' names. Like he's focusing on yes. this dynamic or this relationship. Yes, I've forgotten is, all about that. It's it's about the characters, but it's like it's more about the dynamic between two characters. So like the opening is Marco and Alicia. Or or sorry, Benino and Alicia. And then as it goes on it's um you know, Lydia and so and so. And then later on at the very the very final scene is Marco and Alicia. Like it's yeah. as if they're gonna get together somehow. Or it's now it's gonna be their story and then that's when the credits roll. I, I think it's interesting that he divides the whole movie up into relationships. Yeah, into pairs. Right. Specifically. Yeah, pairs. Exactly. Um absolutely I don't just on a to go back to the to the to the opening dance number. There, there is a panic in the guy playing the man on the stage who is trying to move the chairs out of the way. Mm-hmm. There is such an intense and thrilling panic in his, like it's literally almost like watching a stunt or something. Like yeah. he's, like he's, like it doesn't look like it's choreographed. It looks like that the women are just going wherever, and he's panicking trying to move the chairs out of the way. And it's so brilliantly performed. But <laughs> yeah, I really like the the way it's paired off because then it's just about it focuses you in. Which is again one of the themes of of you, when someone else becomes your whole life. That's what you are. You're no longer Marco. You're Marco of Marco and Alicia. You're Marco of Marco and Lydia. You know? Yeah. yeah. Right. Totally. Um, I actually had forgotten all about that. That's. Um, but yeah. Well, that uh, and then I don't know. That kind of brings me brings me to how this narrative is kind of fractured, and it gets into the sort of not always holding your hand, not always knowing exactly where we are. Like, it'll skip forward and mm-hmm. all of a sudden somebody's there and I, you're thinking, wait, I thought they were in a coma or something. Yeah. yeah. They left. And, like, I had that feeling a couple times. You get back into it. Like, you find your compass or whatever. And yeah. Sort of I think for me, I, I, assimilate, but. I, often, I often know what has happened and I can sort of piece together what has happened and where we are. But I never in his movies like I always feel like I don't know where this is headed. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, because I, again, he's not he does not he's not reliant on very strict story arcs, and you can never really foresee where everything is going in his movies. There's um, not a lot of like spoon feeding of exposition. It's oh just no, just kind of mm-hmm. this is where we are now. Get on board or don't. Because he's I don't think he's I don't think he's terribly interested in story. Um, right. He and likes, that's that's a that's a good thing and that's, in some cases. And that's why and I, that's why I think sort of you know he goes to the sort of soap opera thing because in place of actual plot and events, it's just a series of relationships, and that's what he likes. He likes all the conflict and everything to come out of this complex series of relationships as opposed to events and you know a strict linear um, listing of things that happen and cause and effect. I, I would say the oh go ahead. Well, I was going to say he spends so much time with little details again that don't really matter but that are just awesome like um you know like getting Lydia all dressed up in her bullfight costume like, yeah oh, that's I so amazing that scene but yeah. it's amazing yeah um there's another scene where Marco shows up at the jail for the first time to visit Benino and he has like an 8 minute interaction about how he's not allowed to see him on Saturday or on, you know on a Friday or whatever and oh here my number has changed you should have him call me they can't call you like it's like and oh and they keep like he can't hear her through the glass 
so he keeps having to say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. And, like, that whole scene, it doesn't, it's needless. You don't need it to be there. Why couldn't he just show up at the jail and meet? Well, I think that's, I think. But it's awesome. It's, 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 yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. No, I. That stuff is Tarantino-esque. I I think it's that attention to detail, which, and I think, you know, we're going to go to Tarantino again. I think the same thing is true of Tarantino's movies where even when things get crazy and sort of heightened and melodramatic, there's that level of detail and that level of minor character interaction that make that really grounds everything and makes you believe in it and you're and it keeps you there engaged on an emotional level instead of thinking about it on a oh I see what he's doing now he's going for the Douglas Sirk thing or oh he yeah. you know well Quentin Tarantino loves to have his characters reveal their true colors through conversation just everyday normal conversation and I was taken aback the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs because, what the fuck, all they're doing is talking. And that was a complaint from Ebert, and I'm like, but that that's what makes it so interesting, too. I mean, it, it, in a much more compelling and interesting way than something like, you know, Kevin Smith's movies have done with dialogue. Tarantino, he, he, he brings fully dimensional characters forth through just having them talk about mundane things. And, you know, with Almodovar, he does it, you know, to, to some degree, but they also talk about really important and you and know, I, and things that we all do and should be doing. And yeah, and it's 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 only like I often try when I'm watching movies, try to figure out what the director is saying, and I often try to figure out what kind of themes are being expressed and what he's trying to say. But with Almodovar, I feel he's so concerned about you feeling the emotion of it mm-hmm. that he, that's like those kind of that he wants you grounded. Despite it being, and it's like, what well, the entire time I'm watching talk to her all about my mother, I don't know what I think about it. It's only after I go back and sort through the pieces that I see, oh, there's mm-hmm. these consistent themes and these consistent thematic concerns, and and it's that same thing where he makes these movies about these ideas as opposed to about plots, and the the trouble with that is they can become, you know, a movie like that is it becomes too heady and it it becomes too intellectual, and instead of engaging it. Um, you know, and caring about the characters, you're engaging it on a, oh, okay, I see what he's doing there. But Almodovar, like, he counters that by always making you care about the characters and always being concerned about the emotions. Yeah. And I think part of that is, I think that might be part of the reason why he doesn't have plots that are strict, you know, with strict story arcs and you know where everything's going. Because once you can guess where everything's going, your your mind is free to think about other things. And he wants you to be right there in that moment. Um, have you get, have you guys seen Volver? Not yet. I, I I rented it and I did not. I didn't get a chance to see it. It's it's kind of uh, similar to talk to her in that it's that same kind of thing where a couple of major sort of more intense things happen, mm-hmm. but really it's not about the story. It's about the characters and sort of the emotion. And so I feel like this is a theme with Elmadovar's films, at least from maybe like. 1996 and on. Um, so Volver and Broken Embraces are both like that. Um, yeah, Broken but... Embraces, I, I, I did see that um, in the theater, and I was more taken by it um, visually and... Visually. Yeah, and it's, it's I, almost I, I, a... A greatest hits, right? Yeah, it when, totally is. It's it, like... Yeah. It's um, Almodovar almost drawing a caricature of himself. Yeah, and that's kind of how I felt overall. I've seen, I haven't but seen, I did like it. I actually have not seen much of his 90s. I've seen um, Live Flesh, 
uh, with, with all the movies I've seen, I've seen Matador, which is 86. I saw um, Women on the Virgin Nervous Breakdown, 88. Um, I saw Live Flesh, which I think 96. Or yeah, something. yeah, around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I all about, and then all about my mother, um, bad education, and talk to her. So I'm not exactly sure like what the transition is, but I would say one thing about talk to her, which um, made me, you know, well, obviously it's a brilliant movie, but my personal like response to it, I didn't like it quite as much as his other as his other movies because there wasn't that like sort of sense of humor. And that wit is a lot more serious. And except when the secretary says, "I just took an elephant-sized dump," <laughs> I was I like, "That just that. came out of nowhere." <laughs> I don't remember um, that. That's what I don't. I don't like um, some of Almodovar's earlier stuff, like Dark Habits, um, hmm. The Flower of My Secret. Like I, those are that same kind of. There's no whimsy to them at all. Oh, it's wow. very dark. Oh yeah, and I mean, talk to her has got some darkness to it, but it's still like light, and you can still feel like you want to hang out with these characters. Yeah, where yeah. those other movies are like uh, these people all turn me off. I I felt that way about I maybe he like that's what he sort of learned throughout the nineties how to fine tune his empathy, uh, um, or because I feel like this is something that it's just so intense, and it he's such he makes such intensely personal and specific movies that. They have to be him, you know. It can't just be oh, this is the kind of movie I want to see. This has to be like expressions of himself. Um, but I feel like before all about my mother and talk to her, they you, there wasn't quite. A, and I think live flesh. There's a lot of you feel a lot of empathy for the characters. But definitely, I feel like something like um, a women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. It's more you only care about a couple of characters, and the rest of them are just sort of there to exist. You know to. B plots and everything, and then I, I the other movie I saw in from eighty six the Matador was the first one I didn't like by him. Um, it's in, it's Antonio Banderas, and it's sort of an interesting. It, it's an NC seventeen film. It's like Antonio Banderas uh, is a training to be a bullfighter, and his teacher is a murderer, and who is a bull is an ex bullfighter who's now a murderer. I guess you know because he needs that hunt. They you know they connect the two, and then um, and the, the that murderer falls in love with another murderer. Oh boy! And but there wasn't that like again it like what you said about the uh, about the other films his or other earlier films there wasn't that feeling like you liked any of these characters. Um, it, it just it it mostly just felt like they were strange, but you didn't feel connected to them in any significant way. I have that problem in general. With films, uh, oh yeah, I don't like movies like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or The Other Bolin Girl or any movie where I'm not on board with or I, like I don't I can't root for any character. Every single character in the movie is despicable or not likable. Uh, I hate those kind of movies. Uh, well, I I think it, I think it may be my self-loathing, but I, <laughs> I tend to I tend to relate more to characters' bad traits than their good ones. Like something like Squid and the Whale, I think would be something that a lot of people have that similar complaint. Yep. Um, yep. Where just well, people all, people felt that way about Greenberg. But um, I but felt like I feel like yeah. part of part of me. I feel like there's part of me in every single character in the Squid and the Whale, and none of it none of it's flattering parts. I'm not like, oh, you know what? I'm actually really clever, like this person. No, it's all just the horrible things that they do. But I relate yeah, yeah, to it. Definitely. Go ahead. No, I, I relate to it. You know, I relate to sort of the pretension of Jeff Daniels, and I feel like the sort of hollow mimicry 
that Jesse Eisenberg does where, you know, he doesn't actually know anything, but he wants to appear like he knows it. So he, you know, and I, and just, I feel like there's a lot of the sort of the selfishness of, of Laura Linney and like, I really do relate to those characters despite, I mean, not despite, because of their bad traits. Um, I didn't, but I didn't feel that way about the Matador. Um, and I feel, you know, I think Talk to Her is a good example of a movie where it's only really when you think about it and once it's revealed that, you know, he raped her, that you really are forced to consider what your actual opinion of him as a person would be. Um, because you're just so there. You're so, you know, you you just feel for him. He's a weirdo. He's a, kind of a creep. But, you know, you you, you definitely feel that. Um, you know, and you, and you sort of understand where he's coming from all the same. Um... I've seen Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, hmm. which seems like it would be one of those... I mean, obviously it was controversial at the time because it's essentially Antonio Banderas um, holds a, a, a woman hostage in her own apartment Ooh. and just ties her down and is verbally abusive to her and she's verbally abusive back. Like, they're not very <laughs> likable people. But as the movie goes on, it's actually... It gets pretty funny in places... And it also, like, you do sort of start to sympathize with the characters. Like, kind of, even though they're harsh to each other, the, the points that they bring up are, um, you know, they're valid. And they're real concerns for for each of them as a personal, as a human being. And um, Is it mostly way, just the two of them in, in, in one room? or? Yep, yep almost, oh. almost exclusively. It's just the two of them in an apartment. Oh, I totally got to see that. I just... Real quickly, I just recently watched the uh, Sunset Limited, and uh, based on Cormac McCarthy's play, and I've totally, I want to watch more movies where it's just very limited characters talking things through, or you know, just really, just strong characters having in, you know intelligent conversations where that reveal a lot about themselves. But um, I don't know, I'm, I'm into that kind of structure where it's almost like a play. I've actually been really, um, go ahead. You'll love Man from Earth, then. Okay. <laughs> I've actually been really obsessed. Like I, Even before the community did an episode parodying it, I've really wanted to see My Dinner with Andre for a while now. Oh, yeah. And I, haven't, I actually haven't seen it I haven't yet. seen it either. Oh, I'd... there's a good Criterion release of that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Gotta get on that. I'm excited for that one. It's interesting. So what are your thoughts on Bad Education, Andrew? That's one that I have seen, but I don't really remember it all that well. It's funny, I was actually going to mention that about Almodovar, is how the, the sort of overall theme mm -hmm. and some of the small details in his movies are memorable, but actually, as far as like what happens, every yeah. time I watch like Talk to Her or Volver, it feels like a new experience. Yeah. I've, seen, I've seen Talk to Her like four times. And every time, I just, I don't remember this scene. I don't remember this scene at all. I remember what, ha like, the, the main, I know that he's going to be accused of rape. And, you know, I know the overall, whatever, theme. Right. But as a, as a movie, like, I don't remember all the stuff that happens in there. So I feel like, oh, I don't remember him going through the apartment and seeing Alicia's picture hanging on the wall. Um, stuff like that. So I feel like Bad Education is the same way. Like, I remember the, the thrust of it, or the gist, but I... the details... Yeah. I, I think, again, again I think that might be actually a downside, and probably why... I don't know. I feel like... I mean, Almodovar is a Academy darling. He gets nominated 
for Academy Awards often. Mm-hmm. And he's certainly, you know, one of the biggest Spanish filmmakers of all time. But I feel like he's underrated still. Like, I feel like not many people bring him up when they're bringing up great directors. Um, That's funny. I actually have, I wrote that down today that, like, when I go through, I, how many movie pod, or podcasts and blogs do I view on a daily basis? <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Nobody ever talks about Almodovar. Like, Broken Embraces was good movie it wasn't amazing or anything but it was good and just nobody ever talked about it i think yeah and again i think it might be that thing that you talked about where the impression left in your mind isn't isn't like oh my god that this scene and this scene and you know it's not like inception where or something where you can replay the whole movie in your head it's just like this emotional feeling and i think especially when it comes to movies that i saw like a while back i don't trust that Like, I don't trust my emotional response necessarily, because who knows if I was feeling whatever or whatever. Um, But I, I, yeah, so if you can't remember, like, the details in the plot or memorable quotes or something like that or a funny joke or a great shot necessarily, I mean, which is, movies are full of all of these things, but none of them, like, the overwhelming impression that is left on you is the emotional one. Yeah, and and plus, you know, what, you know, obviously... You know, if you wait two years again to to watch another Almodovar film, you're going to change as a person, you know, even in just smaller ways, or certain, you know, scenes will leave your mind, and then that emotion's going to come flooding back all over again. And having that experience with movies, because there's so many ways you can be moved by a movie, and to go back to that, to relive that, to revisit that, it's like going through a photo album and all these memories and emotions come back when you look quite, at one quite, photo. Quite literally, a 24 photos per second album. <laughs> um, yeah. Well said. Yeah. yeah um, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true of all movies, but I think even because Almodovar is so concerned with the emotional even more, which is such a messy... Like, I could tell you exactly why, you know, Jaws is brilliant. I could tell yeah. you the exact mechanics that make that movie so great every step of the way. I couldn't really do... I mean... Like, I guess maybe as we prove the way we only have talked, you know, we don't talk about necessarily a lot of specifics, um, you know, about these two movies. We've talked mostly about just the general feeling that we got watching them. Yeah. You know, it's not a, it's not a movie I could go back and say, well, this is brilliant because this goes to this and then this is recalled here. Um, actually, there's another thing I want to talk about as far as bad education goes, uh, which is his, 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 um, Hitchcock influence. Um, I think, in a similar way to De Palma, they're both very voyeuristic, mm-hmm. um, like Hitchcock. Constantly in Almodovar movies, even if people aren't spying on each other or seeing, you know, seeing each other through, you know, shower curtains, just constantly shots of people on balconies, people looking at yes. windows through other windows. That's one of my favorite tropes. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. The, the, I wanted to mention the music too. Like he uses, especially in All About My Mother, that sort of classical, lots of violins, very foreboding yeah. kind of thriller-esque type of music even if the scene itself isn't all that thrilling uh, it, it's still got that feel to it and it's got and it's, a lot of that has to do with the music that he's using yeah and Bad Education the score is very reminiscent of Bernard Herrmann for sure but it's also yeah I mean he's really good at using the score to accentuate a scene without overwhelming it and Bad Education features my absolute favorite um, I don't think he's a transsexual he's just a transvestite Best but his absolute favorite transvestite characters 
Gail Garcia yes. Bernal, who makes such a beautiful woman. I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> the, the little facial expression yeah. she makes during that performance on stage is like so subtle and wonderful. Carly, Carly just like gave a little moan of ecstasy <laughs> thinking about Gail Garcia Bernal as a woman. So pretty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Even I think the DVD cover has his face, right, and half of it is as a woman, and half of his right. of it as himself, mm-hmm. and it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. It's a pretty remarkable performance by that guy, and I've always liked him. So he's awesome. You know what's he's crazy? Awesome that talk to her and E2 Mama Tambien came out the same year. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's just and those two movies. Wait, wait, I'm blow sorry. my wait. mind. I love those. Mo- I love those two movies. But now that I think about it, what's crazy about that? <laughs> I don't, well, I just I don't know. It's like I remember seeing. That's when I was still a film critic. Because Itu Mama, Itu Mama is Mexican, and then Talker well, is Spanish. I know, but I remember seeing those movies really close together when I was when I was actually a film critic and writing about them and talking about them on the radio and whatnot. And like my. I remember having difficulty saying exactly why I loved those two movies in particular, yeah. other than just like, oh my god, the feeling I got. Just you, the emotion well, Alfonso, overwhelmed me. Alfonso Cuarón's one, I can't wait to get it. Maybe we'll wait for... We should wait. If oh, Gravity wow. ever comes out. You mean the the movie, not the actual Gravity? Yeah. Uh, if, if, if we ever invent Gravity, the... <laughs> Maybe I'll stop floating away into space, and then we'll get to be able to do a Sorry, Huron movie. I recycled a joke. Yeah, um, my bad. Oh, is that a joke from another? Yeah, we did that in another podcast. I think. Right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but um, no, but when he's but he's another again the stat long steady cam shots is a favorite of mine. But um, yeah, uh, Almo Dovar he didn't do a movie last year, right? It was no uh, broken, broken embraces. embraces was t- 2009. Uh, yeah, it was 09. So he has another movie coming out this year. So I'm we're excited very excited about. about his next movie. We're it's... always like, and again, it's, it's it's such a wonderful discovery, and that's sort of what I've one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is this and Joseph Losey especially were such like just treats where you you discover this filmmaker who you've never even you know like Almodovar I was sort of familiar with, but all I knew was he did talk to her. And he did a movie called All, you know, he did All About My Mother and Bad Education. And I really didn't hear any, I never really heard of Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. I didn't hear about any of the stuff from the 90s, Live Flesh, any of that. And it's just, it's been such a pleasure to go through his filmography and just sort of realize there's this super unique guy who's making movies unlike anyone else out there. Yeah, and I was texting you while I was watching Life Flesh going, oh my fucking god, are yeah. we, we're, gonna, we're gonna have a lot of fun again. <laughs> you know? God, how awesome, how mm-hmm. awesome is uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown too? Oh. How just crazy off the rails it goes at the last for the last half hour. Like, Oh my god, that, that one chase. Uh, the one shot of the mother um, on the motorcycle with her hair whipping in the wind. Yeah, like it's awesome, so great. But I love that whole movie because I really am a big fan of like screwball comedies, and I think it's oh, cool. it's a outstandingly funny movie. And again, there's a lot of the meta elements where she she just broke up with the guy, and then but they both um, dub voices for movies, and mm-hmm. they're doing this. I think it's a Douglas Sirk movie. It might be something else though. And like it's a scene where the two characters are breaking up, and she has to act out with him, who's he's also a voice actor. And it's, it's like, so brilliant. And, again, that was, like, it's a comedy, and it's funny, and it's light. It's not, it doesn't hit these heavy themes that All About My Mother or Talk to Me, do, Talk to Her does. But it's so 
well directed and so brilliant and and it's just every every moment there's just such a like a visual delight or like an unexpected little turn or a really funny performance like the the cab the cab the <laughs> disco cab driver yeah that's great <laughs> <laughs> and he's selling. He has like mambo. Drug- it's mambo. Mambo cat. That's right. And he, he he's selling like a. He has a drugstore in the back, and she he happened like she she's like, why don't you have this? And he yells at him. And the next time they see him, he has it in the cab. It's such a wonderful movie. And actually, there's a guy um who contacted me on Twitter because I was talking about Almodovar, uh, and he hate he, he doesn't hate Almodovar, but he really doesn't like him. <laughs> and he was and he was just going like, ah, well, this movie's all right, and Women on the Verge that was sort of a trifle, and <laughs> like I just everything well, about Almodovar clicks for me. Yeah, I think people are really drawn to the maybe the storytelling or screenwriting aspect yeah. of filmmaking might be turned off by Almodovar. Or, or if melodrama turns yeah. you off, it took me a while to get in tune with melodrama. Like I, I, I needed like gateway drugs into melodrama. I needed like I think Aronofsky. <laughs> was was someone who whose melodrama sort of ate like he helped me into Douglas Sirk who you know so do you think you're gonna like Revolutionary Road now no no because <sighs> Revolutionary Road is a horrible movie shut your mouth uh, that's wrong <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah. watch hey I'll watch it again but that movie is so on I'll, the nose we'll do I know that's what I like about it, it <laughs> it's so and it just hits you over the head with these things that like Sam Mendes already. Like the most surprising thing, most surprising like film thing for me in the past several years was how much I loved um, Away, we, Away go. we Go. Yeah, because all of others, all well, I, I kind of like Jarhead and Road to Perdition's fine, um, but I really like his movies. I no. do too. Not, all the way back to American Beauty. Now yeah. American Beauty is something that I need to revisit. I feel like that would be really dated, and I remember like being really bothered by the voiceover, and I don't know. I think there's elements it's so of that movie. Funny. I, yeah, if you watch there's it def- as a comedy. It's so funny. I, there's definitely things I think. Uh, there's lines I think about that are really funny. Like, and Peter the boss is like the boss. <laughs> is that Peter Gallagher? Yeah. The boss. The yeah. bo- Peter Gallagher is like, uh, do you have a minute? And Kevin Spacey is like, for you, I have five. <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's you know, there's a lot of funny parts in that, but I think overall the the tone of American Beauty is really off putting to me. And it just feels well, we'll have a really Sam self-satisfied. We'll have a, yeah. definitely have a Sam Mendes Have a episode. Sam Mendes. Throw Revolutionary Road in there. Oh, yes. I'll, I'll rewatch I mean, it. That movie's awesome just for the Michael Shannon performance. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's That was the... that Like, if you want to talk about, like, proof that a, the, an actor is great, Michael Shannon's role in the movie is literally just a mouthpiece for the themes. Like, <laughs> his, like his character almost entirely exists to tell you what the movie is about. And he's amazing in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got it's it. a huge reason why I love that movie. But I don't know. That um, was one quickly, of our first. Just back to back to Almodovar. Right. I would. I my recommendation for people that want an in I would definitely be either talk to her or Volver. I feel like Volver oh, yeah? is very. It's got a structure to it. It's it's got some slightly slightly darker themes, but it's much more lighthearted. And, and of course, you can't go wrong with Penelope Cruz's cleavage. I would think, I would go with um, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. This is, I mean, maybe necessarily yeah, not the but, best gateway because not many of his movies actually like resemble that, that one, yeah. but I feel like that's definitely his most accessible. Yeah, maybe. I, I remember the first maybe like half hour of that movie being really sort of all over the place and yeah. kind of confusing. I guess yes, yeah, true. It, it, it definitely, as it, if you can stick with it, it definitely breaks down into a 
more conventional, like easy to follow, just screwball fun. Where, yeah, the, know, like, the second and third tells like an where interesting story, like a ghost story. Literally. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, I have yeah, I haven't seen Volver, so I'll have to. I think, but that's I, the other I thing definitely too. think more people should watch more Elmo Dovar. Yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's like you know, discovering Almodovar in the same way that Patrick and I discovered Joseph Losi has been a real treat. And on top of that, our favorite—well, we haven't seen you know all of Losi's films, but our favorite film of his, *The Servant*, um, is now on Netflix Instant. Oh, that's right. So that's that. I keep I very keep wanting hard, to emphasize that a, a very hard to find film. You, if you if you remember our discussion about it several you know maybe a, a couple months ago now. Um, if you remember our discussion, you'll know that we were both very sort of taken aback and blown away by it. Yeah. Also, um, if you're in the Chicago area, um, his movie, um, oh, what what is it called now? Is it Richard Burton Elizabeth Taylor? Um, begins with a B. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. 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 There we go. Boom is playing at the music box as a matinee. Oh, that's cool. And that's because they're doing a Tennessee Williams retrospective. Oh. Tennessee Williams wrote the screenplay for that. Um, nice tie I've heard that's a, I heard that's, that's a crazy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but you wanna, if you want to remember Tennessee Williams, I guess it's his birthday or something coming up, you want to remember Elizabeth Taylor, you know, you want to you wanna get further into Losey. You yeah. know, boom. Boom. Uh, another, <laughs> another movie not on DVD, so. I didn't catch that episode of your guys' show just because I wasn't familiar with them and I like to watch some movies before I... Sure. Right. And so I, that that is in the works. I plan on doing that. I see he's remade M. Yes! Yeah. I know. Was that part of your discussion? No, no we, 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 had, we, didn't we did not that see one. that. But okay. we I've actually heard it was interesting. It was like an interesting remake as opposed to like a remake of The Vanishing or something. Okay. But I, I, I've never seen it so I can't. I can only go by hearsay. Um, so yeah, I think that's that brings us to. The <laughs> what was we always have tr- we always have trouble wrapping it yeah. up. <laughs> well, what have you guys got um, planned? Oh yeah, you already said that, David Gordon Green. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited. My friend Colin Suter, who um, who who writes for eFilmCritic.com, and he's actually going to be in uh, a published uh, film book of some kind. I, I you know that sort of. Uh, um, Catalogs or has a bunch of reviews in it, much like a Leonard Malton guide of sorts. But it's, I think it's based out of Chicago. I can't remember. I'll ask him more about it. But um, he's he's been a published film critic and he's made documentaries of his own. Um, him and I are pretty much the only two people I know on the planet that think All the Real Girls is the best movie about relationships ever. So I'm really excited. Are we going to talk about All the Real Girls? Oh, um, for sure. Because I. I, I've only seen it once, and I remember being really bored to tears Again, by it. Again, it's more oh, of... Movie. Yeah, it, it's more because, on a personal note, the two major things that happened in the movie have happened to me in some of my relationships or my early Well, yeah, relationships. I'm looking right now. But, you have a big All the Real Girls poster up on your wall. Well, yeah. I mean, so I have a real personal attachment to right. that movie, and, you know, not because I'm, you know, I, I like the Zoe. She's cute. But right. I, I really love everything about that You mostly movie. like Paul Schneider because well, he's, he's a dreamboat. Yeah. And they play my favorite Sparkle Horse song during a makeout <laughs> scene. It's like, that movie was made for me. As I'm watching it, I'm like, did you just make this movie for me? Yeah. <laughs> Much like when I saw Eternal Sunshine. I was like, oh, my God, you, you made this movie for me. That's really cool. Thanks. <laughs> but no, yeah, David Gordon Green is going to be um, in two weeks. 
there is a possibility for all those out there interested that this summer we'll we'll go to a weekly format temporarily temporarily (laughs) because i won't be as engrossed in school and classes so we'll have some more time at the very least we'll contribute more bonus episodes too Mm -hmm. so uh maybe we're we're really excited we're, we're discussing maybe doing a doing a commentary track Oh yeah, but we don't know. <laughs> we, were, we were discussing maybe doing Mortal Kombat Annihilation. <laughs> that seems more like a film sack thing to do. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. Well, I, it's, I, I wouldn't mind going in that direction. Um, but whatever. We're, that's not it. That's definitely not a certain certainty. Yeah. Um, or we could just do all the real girls, and it'll just be me crying for an hour. Yeah, you crying <laughs> and me going, all right, yeah, you made a garden on a trampoline. So what? <laughs> Shut your mouth. Uh, no, I'm really actually very excited to watch all the real girls again because I often find there are movies that I that um, if I have certain expectations of them or certain ideas of what they are the first time I see them, I get disappointed, and then the second time I see them, it it settles in and I actually am able to better judge it for what it is rather than what I was expecting. It's a lot like Terrence Malick. That's yeah, all, you know. Mm, Tree of Life. Yes, can't wait. For My that. most anticipated movie. Of the actually, year. I'm really upset because. Uh, the 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 boom is playing as a matinee, and it happens to be playing the exact same time I'm working that weekend. Aww. And then they're going to be doing it in honor of Tree of Life. Um, Music Box is doing a Terrence Malick thing where they're doing matinees. Then, and my favorite, one of my favorite all time movies, um, Badlands. Badlands. That nice. that is that's also playing during uh, during when I'm working. Oh my god! So I'm gonna I'm, I'll be able to see Days of Heaven, and I think I'll be able to see. I'm not sure if Thin Red Line or maybe just I'll be only be able to see uh, Fuck. Days of Heaven and New World. Both but. of those on a yeah I know. big screen. Days it, of Heaven. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. They it's it's really great. I think I I like I kind of am upset that it took me so long to realize that there was like a revi- a really great revival theater in my city. <laughs> and I think you should. I think people should like look into that. Um, you know, if they have something like that nearby, because there it's always outstanding. Um, it's always my favorite uh, part of, you know, my favorite movie experiences almost all take place at the music box. Yeah, pretty much. It's a great theater. Mm-hmm. So, Andrew, anything um, you want to plug real quick? Yeah, yeah, before we go. Please do. Uh, no, not really. Just stop by row three. Like uh, you guys mentioned, we do a cinecast every week, pretty much. And they go on entirely too long. But uh, <laughs> next week, I think we're going to be talking about Hannah. And I was also going to try to get out and see Kill the Irishman tomorrow. We'll see if that oh, that's right. Oh. I was interested in that movie. Yeah, I'm a D'Onofrio fan, so that's yeah, cool. yeah, definitely so back in action. Um, other than that, no, excellent. I uh, do. We do have the movie club. Uh, yeah, the movie club podcast is going to be recorded sometime in early May, and we're talking about Zardoz <laughs> and Flash Gordon. That's great. Yes. That's going to be a great episode. Yeah, I think it will be. It, there's going to be some divis- divisive opinions there. Not as much as... Some are pro-Sean Connery in a diaper. Some are anti-Sean <laughs> Connery in a diaper. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. I wonder how much it'll compare to the Lady in the Water divisive <laughs> episode. I mean, well, actually, everybody... Jay was the only one that loved that movie. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That, that was really? So, you loved so, that movie? That was so entertaining to hear. I loved that episode. <laughs> Because it's, I love funny games. They talk funny games and Lady in the Water, and it's just a, it's a great episode. And I, I was not a part of the Irreversible, um, ooh yeah, conversation because they talked about Irreversible and Visitor, Visitor Q, Q. Yeah. and I did loathe both of those movies. <laughs> now I'm, so I just didn't really want to deal bother with it. But right, I kind of wish I had been on there to 
set some people straight. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So thanks, guys. I appreciate you bringing me on. That was fun. Absolutely, Absolutely. Andrew. It's, it was a pleasure having you on. And, and of course, if you want to, you want to visit our website. It's directorsclubpodcast.com. dot com, or email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. Yeah. So yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. Um, hopefully, we'll have you on again, especially when we do Soderbergh. So thanks a lot for your awesome. time. All right, yeah, until bet. next time, uh, this has been the, the Director's Club Podcast. Yeah. All right, good night. I'm a fucking caveman! And he's not Buck, and he's not here to fuck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.